I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Titanic. Take a journey back in time in search of a mystery locked beneath the sea. On December 19th, you will be given the key. We're going to America. Oh, forget it, boy. You'll never get next to the likes of her. Don't come any closer. I'll let go. No, you won't. You are not to see that boy again. I'm the king of the world! That made you think you could put your hands on my fiance. It's not up to you to save me, Jack. They've got you trapped. If you don't break free, you're gonna die. It's a ship. There's only so many places she can be. Find her. Water is freezing and there aren't enough boats. Half the people on this ship are going to die. For God's sake, there's women and children down here! Let us out so we can have a chance! Where are you going? What to him? You jump high, jump right. I hope you enjoy your time together! And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. This one was a long time coming for us. It actually snuck up on me how important this movie was. I had underestimated it. It was simply part of the Cameron season that we kept off in the distance in the Never Never. It was one of the big four we had to come back to. This, True Lies, Avatar, and The Abyss. And True Lies and The Abyss, and frankly Avatar, never really meant that much to me. But this one does... What we really want to avoid is sweeping statements on this episode as to why some folks dislike this film. I hate it when I hear podcasts do that. Uh, you can't hand wave a vast amount of different people's experiences. The reality is that despite its astonishing popularity, there are in fact myriad reasons why it would rub people up the wrong way. It's broad and populist and emotionally manipulative, or it feels that, that way. It's opulent to the point of obscenity. It's patronizing of almost every group of people that it represents on screen. Uh, it's extremely long, clearly aimed at women and old people and... The romance is overbearing and it is frequently crass about real human lives being lost. It was bestowed the majority of awards by the Academy that year, like an overachieving class president, to the exclusion of some genuinely great films. Cameron himself asked for a minute's silence from everyone for those who died in the sinking, but not before declaring himself king of the world. Maybe the most obnoxious line in the whole film to a lot of people that didn't like it. 
James Horner's score actively prompts you to cry, which a lot of folks are uncomfortable with in public or, frankly, in private. And then there are folks who generally mistrust or reject massively popular things. I know people who have never seen this and never will on general principle. Statistically speaking, a bunch of them are listening to this show right now. We're not popular, luckily, so they can listen to us. If you got sick of hearing Let It Go around the end of 2013, then this might be you, because you'd probably also have gotten sick hearing My Heart Will Go On over and over again in 1997 and 1998. And then there's a smaller subsection of dudes who considered James Cameron to be their director, their director up to a point. He made Terminator and Aliens and The Abyss and True Lies and Piranha 2 The Spawning. And suddenly now he's making something seemingly not for them at all. A big epic period drama starring that lanky boy that all the girls go giddy over. It's hard to imagine now, since we're long past that time that Leonardo DiCaprio proved his worth with cinephiles by being in Scorsese movies and screaming and swearing and foaming at the mouth and crawling through the snow and munching down bison livers and raw fish under natural lighting. But back in the late 90s, if you remember at the time, if you were there, he was a soft boy. He was a heartthrob who made the ladies melt, so... Around the time internet scumbag Harry Knowles set up Ain't It Cool News, it became very popular for a certain kind of staunch individual to hate on Titanic and the girls who fell under its spell. But back then, in early 1998, age 17, and coming to terms with maintaining an emotional intensity as I entered adulthood, I saw this movie five times at the cinema. Once with my friends Paul and Tony, who were my previous co-hosts on the first incarnation of this show, Digital Cowboys. Uh, once that, uh, that was ten years afterwards that we started. It was 1997 through to 2007. Uh, I saw it once with my mum and sister, once with a female friend that I was hoping to romance. Didn't manage to, but she remained a very lovely person. Uh, but that leaves twice where I just saw it again because I loved it for various reasons that I will be discussing on this show. If anything, Sharon was the one that took some convincing. She was reticent to rewatch the film on DVD when we first got together in the year 2000 because she hates feeling emotionally manipulated. And this film feels like it's doing that. But I don't think it's cynical. If anything, it's too raw and melodramatic and intense for some. It's too earnest. It gives you nowhere to hide. And you are forced to sit with tragedy, both fictional on the small scale and on the large, sadly all too real. The language of melodrama is alien and alienating to those who avoid it. This is why it can be so polarizing. The uh, cast and crew mentioned during the uh, interviews, if you watch the voluminous level of extras on the special editions, that there were people wandering around with t-shirts that said, The boat sinks! Get over it! In a kind of a, okay, cool, I, I, I get that. But that, that's what, like, there were people who would corner you if you said you liked it and went, oh, didn't you know what the ending was going to be? And it's like, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, there's, there's a spectrum of, like I said, of reasons not to like it and a spectrum of people who didn't like it. And ultimately, it's fine to, it's okay to not like a movie, just try not to be a colossal prick about it. I've, I've been guilty of that myself. Um, 
but I don't tend to jump on people's cases if they say they liked The Rise of Skywalker. I'm like, mm, I don't have to respond. I don't have to respond. I don't have to get... Luckily, it doesn't happen. Um, but it is possible to like Titanic without loving it or to dislike it without hating it. Sometimes you just have to abandon reason and go with your gut. And if you do that, the film will have done its job. One thing is for sure, though, there will never be another film quite like Titanic again. There was a remake of The Poseidon Adventure in 2006, and the two films about ships that sink could not be more different in their approach. For one thing, I'm probably the first person that you've heard mention the Kurt Russell and Joshua Lucas Poseidon since 2006. I equate Titanic with wet as Lord of the Rings in terms of monumental achievements in late 90s, early 2000s filmmaking. Both pushed practical effects to their limit, and both pioneered computer effects, making a hybrid of styles, which made them winners with audiences looking for spectacle. And yet, at their cause, the Lord of the Rings and Titanic are both driven by drama. I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. And there aren't that many films that really hit these heights. And then it was a very specific time. Prior to the 90s, CG was very, very basic in movies. So really, it's, it's the, it started with Jurassic Park and then included, I suppose... Independence Day and The Matrix and then kind of culminated with Lord of the Rings, the first couple of Harry Potters and Spider-Man. The pushing of that practical when you could now just lean on CG doesn't happen all that often. It takes a special film to go out of its way to try to be this level of analog filmmaking. Hellboy the Golden Army prided itself in its practical effects, as did The Force Awakens. They wanted to do it old school. I never had a chance to tell you how I felt. Give me your hand. Like I said, it made Lord of the Rings and Titanic winners with audiences looking for spectacle, but they also both have an immensity of heart, even if Sam and Frodo, Jack and Rose were a bit too much for some. No judgment, it's a very sweet source to have to swallow. While only Lord of the Rings made absolute best use of Bernard Hill, both endeavours cost phenomenal amounts of money and had the studios very worried. Both eventually wound up celebrated and awarded for their services to cinema, bringing in those billions of dollars and justifying their extraordinary production in the eyes of the money men. And watching it now in HD, you can see the grandeur shot on film. Now that we are long past switching to predominantly digital, it feels like a relic caught in 1997 and 1912 simultaneously. They literally don't make them like this anymore, if they ever did. The Oscar goes to James Cameron for Titanic. 
Josh McLaughlin, Ra, uh, Rod Lurie, my brother Mike Cameron, who, who uh, built the uh, deep diving camera system, uh, my lovely wife Linda, our two beautiful children, Dalton and Josephine, and my original producers, my parents who are here tonight, Philip, Philip and Shirley Cameron, Mom, Dad, there's no way that I can express to you what I'm feeling right now. My heart is full to bursting, except to say, I'm the king of the world! I do think this falls into the category of Hollywood classic in the sense that if you look back at what tends to get touted as a Hollywood classic, it's you're right about the spectacle. It It's always stuff that makes it look bigger than a cinema screen could possibly be. It's Lawrence of Arabia looking at the desert. It's those swords and sandals epics because you had this landscape that was immense. Anything that's got mountains that's particularly well shot or and this obviously has the ocean it's got the sheer More than size anything, of the willow shore. is not regarded in this way it bloody well should be it should be yes but but the the ones i'm talking about that they do go wow isn't that incredible there's always a sense of of grandeur. hugeness about them Huge, grandeur yeah. yeah exactly and that the the emphasis of titanic the ship on we want this to have the most luxurious first-class deck for everybody to come to and go, oh my, doesn't this look amazing? You spent so much money on it, it's wonderful. The Titanic, the film, has an element of that too. Mm. And the there's something about those money men that you're talking about, they do not work in cold, hard math. Because if they did, they would all jack in their huge studios and make cheap horror movies that they can churn out that make... 10, 15 times their budget. Mm. If that was all they were bothered about, that's all they'd make, and it's not. They want the attention that a big, sweeping, grand movie gets. Mm. Where the story is the money. Uh, Mark Kermode uh, once wrote a chapter about how no expensive movie ever really loses money. I disagree, but yeah, he talked about the... Waterworld! Well, he cited Waterworld <laughs> for most of that chapter. <laughs> But uh, I think that there are certain films like John Carter, which really didn't make its money back and, and really did just kind of look bad for the studio that, in this case, Disney, had done really, really well with Pirates repeatedly, but just can't seem to find that big live-action thing that's not Marvel and not Star Wars to replace it. Mm. And they keep kind of trying, and yeah. it's... See, here's where I think that grandeur, they... It's really difficult to get people to admit it, but that grandeur, Marvel and Star Wars, are where you find it now because where are you going to get that's bigger than a cinema screen these days? Space. Mm. That cosmic scale is really the only thing that you can bring to a very cynical modern audience that's like, seen everything. <laughs> Meanwhile, the cosmically grand Eternals makes a lot less than Marvel hoped. Oh, it's, it's a really posh train. And everyone sort of scoffs at Murder on the Orient Express and goes, well, we already know the ending and there's already I've a film of this that trains. exists. <laughs> I mean, if that's the metric, that the only thing in films is that you've got to see something that you've never seen before, i got to tell you about some deviant porn because... <laughs> 
Because there's some things that you've never seen before. You'll not want to see them. <laughs> They're going to hand out eye bleach after the movie. My eyes. But I mean, like that can't surely be the only metric. Show me something brand new. Surely feeling a combination of things you haven't felt before in different measures of intensity mm. and and being engaged it's got to be more than just novelty surely I, there's obviously more to it but the the equations that make up to a grand hollywood epic that everybody loves that gets people coming back to the cinemas and o- over and over again to mm. see something those equations are elusive mm. And too often they get them, but they don't know what they've got. And then they take them apart and they try to piece something back together again out of the pieces, but they miss something crucial. And so they keep trying again and again and again to do the same thing. And it just keeps failing. I'm compelled to talk about the success of Avatar, but of course we'll... We will come back to that later, but that's exactly what I was thinking of. That film makes Uh, money... uh, uh, You're going to have to hold it. You have to hold it. We've got a Titanic to talk about here. I know. Okay. But just put a pin in that novelty. Yeah, put a pin in that novelty. Yeah. This will probably surprise a few of you because I, as I thought about it, it surprised me. I don't know, Sharon doesn't know this yet. Titanic is, in fact, my favorite James Cameron film. (gasps) See, that's a straight up gasp. That is a genuine, audible gasp. Oh, my God. It took me watching it this time to realise that. Yeah. And I thought it was Aliens. Yeah, I, I would have pegged it as Aliens. I would have, like, if you asked me, I put a gun to my head last week and said, what's you, do that thing where it's like, ask Sharon, what's Alex's favourite, maybe not the gun to the head, ask Sharon, what's Alex's <laughs> favourite uh, um, James Cameron movie? She'd have said, uh, Aliens? And written that down on the card. And I would have written down Aliens. And then I watched this again. And I thought... Also, Terminators 1 and 2. There's a, there's a hair's breadth between them. I love them both. They're both fantastic. And it's very close across all four. And there's a big drop-off after that with True Lies, Avatar, and uh, The Abyss. And then uh, there's, an a- abyss. there's an abyss. <laughs> and then there's Piranha 2, The Spawning. And I suppose you could also count Ghosts of the Abyss, which is closer to um, the, the, the other four. But it's, it's very close to in my top four. But... Titanic has the edge for several reasons. And if you look at the 13 books I've written so far, not one of them was about space marines, or parasitic aliens, or crazed AI, or stalking murder robots. I like the fact that you've put so far. I said so far. Leaving room for those things to happen. Always leave room. (laughs) Always leave a door open. But elements of all of those films and worlds that Cameron has created and expanded upon have worked their way into my stories nonetheless. Hucker, the tiger in Tiger's Eye, stalking Rao and Miguel, is the Terminator. He won't stop. And that's the source of fear. He's the shadow. But the setting... The setting for the New Century Multiverse is an inversion of the setup of Titanic. Jim took a real-life event in 1912, the Edwardian Age, one of great tragedy, and created several fictional characters to be our avatars, exploring that historical world. Jack and Rose interact with Thomas Andrews, J. Bruce Ismay, Captain Edward Smith, First Officer William Murdoch, Charles Lightoller, John Jacob Astor, and the unsinkable Molly Brown. A whole 
gaggle of real-life figures who really were there in dramatized roles that took some liberties, some small, and some fairly large with how they behaved on that night. More on that in a bit. I took the real world as it existed in 1872, the Reconstruction Era, and I instigated a fictional global tragedy in the form of a transformative pandemic. And I did this as a means of exploring grief and disaster and how we push forwards from that and how we keep on going and how we find hope at the darkest of times. Then, in among my various fictional characters who explore this increasingly different timeline as it goes on, I threaded in Annie Oakley and Ulysses S. Grant and Frank Butler and Frederick Douglass and Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison and Rutherford B. Hayes and Al Swearingen. I put them into my world to ground it in a sense of reality. On the RMS Oceanic, we put out to sea from Liverpool en route across the vast stretch of blue Atlantic to New York City. She was a magnificent ship, drawing her power from two ages of technology, with four masts to fly the sails of the old world, whilst recently fitted additional boilers bolstered her steam power to propel her into the new. The White Star Line had spared no expense in her construction, and my family were affluent enough to occupy the upper echelons as three of its 166 saloon passengers. I recall sharply the staggering sense of scale she brought into my world as we exited our carriage beside her at port. This vast black edifice rising from the sea, monolithic in its presence, with a collection of snowy white buildings up on her deck, dizzyingly high above us, and that golden line running the length of her hull which divided the two. I watched the thousand steerage passengers filing up the gangplanks and into her bowels, where they would spend the majority of their voyage confined, and was struck by a fierce realization of this inequity. It was perhaps the first time in my life that the divides of class had been symbolized so purely. I spent the initial day pacing the deck, hanging over the railings and watching the immense glittering sea, obligingly keeping to myself and not bothering the adults around me. By the evening, after we had dined upon boiled goose and my father had retired for brandy and cigars, I was left alone with my mother, Estelle, who was, once again, stricken by debilitating seasickness. One of the major remits of the 1997 film Titanic was making we, the audience, feel like we were actually there, on the ground, on the deck, under the lights, at the tables, on the railings, and finally in the freezing water. The creators wanted us to smell the paint and hear the thundering screws. I've heard it referred to as a theme park ride, but it really doesn't feel like that. Theme park rides don't want you to engage emotionally. It might have the aesthetics or the trappings of a theme park ride in terms of, especially at the end, they sort of take you up and then slam you down and then take you back up again. But that's like pointing at Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak and saying, oh, it's a horror movie. Mm -hmm. It's got the trappings well, of and the aesthetics of and the mechanics of a horror movie, but it's not mm. a horror movie. Anyway. So this is not a jiggle box. No. You can look at Michael Bay's Transformers. I was just about to say, 
Go watch a Michael Bay, it's not the same. Go watch Michael Bay's Transformers, any of them, and then go on the Universal Studios Transformers ride. They are virtually indistinguishable. Except that the Universal Studios ride won't talk about a boy masturbating. Mm. Um, They're slightly less racist and you can get off them sooner. That's true, actually. Although they will both make you want to puke. (laughs) Very true. So I don't think it's a theme park ride. I think it's a journey that we all are taken on together and it is imbued with a depth of feeling that makes everything sharper and more distinct and at its core there is the story of class disparity and the dreadful inhumane treatment of the poor and the immigrant those that the upper crust prefer to ignore like these are just some of the comparisons i made to titanic in in how, what has emerged in my work since 2013 but james penrose who took a trip on the Oceanic in a way that I very deliberately keyed up with Titanic is there's elements of Rose in there and I very much juxtaposed him against Abigail who has Rose's hair and played effectively Jack in in their pairing. Um, Robin, the rapscallion in The Princess Thieves and Gwendolyn in her gilded cage, again, seriously drawing from that pair. She's an English Rose. Lord Aaron in The Princess Thieves again, very much compared with Cal Hockley. Then if we go to one of my most recent uh, books, uh, Stone Spring Maidens, Calendula Renwick, the character that you played, that is Cal. Her name is Cal. Mm. That's not a mistake. The arrangements are finalising and we're going through with the first trials and I simply cannot explain further. Now, Penny, sweetness, clearly you're... Cal clicked her fingers at the waiter, who hurried over as she continued. Dying to tell me everything about this morning. Darkest cadamia infusion, slender, three sugar, three brunch menus, and how did the little girl enjoy her new watsit? The waiter blinked, nodded, and retreated. Well, it was a boy, and I was providing him with a new hand. We'll both have the lamb. Rare, with very little mint sauce, eh? You like lamb, right, sweet pea? You gonna cut her meat for her too there, Cal? <laughs> then Penny and Harry, they take up the rose, and Jack roles effectively it's a it's a lesbian romance played because it's in a world where that's not a weird thing i don't play it in a transgressive fashion i just play them it it as though it's 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 male female it doesn't matter but it matters to harry because there she can actually be who she's felt like all this time And Lamia, Penny's mother in uh, Stone Spring Maidens, very much based on Rose's mother in this. You look like a 14-son dandiprat. A directionless wastrel more suited to riding her scooter on the promenade than attaining a place of societal prominence where she belongs. Do your patients not query it? Does it scare them to receive their treatments from someone who looks like they first bled not two sons ago? This is a genuine question. I'm not seeking to insult you. I would simply like to know... A fire had gathered inside Penny, an indignance that butted up against the back of her teeth, a pressure in her lungs and behind her eyes, her tongue reared back like a serpent ready to strike. A lot of them think it's fun, she murmured in a small voice, lowering her hair to obscure her eyes and sipping the comforting chocolate. Harry is trapped by her disability, something she needs to overcome and learn to live with and cope with a new gradation of freedoms. But Penny is trapped within her social structure, which when weighted against her appears almost insurmountable. The, st- the, the, the structure of the story of let them go 
and everything Rebecca goes through and everything Dawson represents and the fact that his name is Dawson and that's that's about the fragile hold that the patriarchy had on society as it's breaking down. What we experience in that night in Let Them Go is the same as in Titanic as the man says, it'll be all right, it's fine, it's probably this Egyptian rabies thing. It's that level of denial and disbelief as everything crumbles out from under you and everything that you put stock in changes and Rebecca has to rise to that occasion. Rebecca has to be Rose in this scenario. Egyptian rabies. That's the province of far-off dusty, fly-blown places with unpronounceable names and gorilla kings. Like leprosy or hookworm. This isn't the Dark Continent, this is the British Isles. Amanda was glaring at Dawson, trembling, and Rebecca realised on the spot that both of them were hoping he was right. The font of Arlington, the, the, the title Arlington, is the Titanic font. Panthersoul is about a treasure hunter whose perspective has changed over the course of the story. I hadn't realised that until I got to the thinking about Bill Paxton. When you watch the deleted scene of the alternate ending and he has to just sort of let the heart of the ocean go it's like oh it's it's what rose found as she rejected that the high life that becomes the story and the thing that we're seeking but i think one of the key reasons that titanic really hit us hard as a culture all of us even those who just didn't want to like it um approaching the new millennium because remember, it was released just years away and we were all like, are all the computers going to stop? Is civilization going to collapse? Will all the nuclear warheads go off? Because we were still in that phase in our heads. Because Cameron had taught us with Terminator 2, it's going to happen, folks. Watch out for the bombs. <sighs> the whole thing's a big disaster and it's allegorical for a societal collapse. We'll talk about that later. But like, Titanic is a slice of the end of the world, or at least the crumbling of what we thought we could rely on, and people dying in droves as a result. One of the huge reasons that it hit us so hard was that it was based on something very real. This is Cameron's only historical epic, and I'm kind of glad of that if you look at what he's done re regarding historical accuracy in the years since, put a pin in that, more on that later. It's potent. And it maintains that potency. And at the time, in 97, it was just still able to be touched by the living memories of those youngest who survived it 75 years previously. When it came out, there were people who were on the Titanic who got into theatres and sat down and watched the Titanic sink again. And I can only imagine, and we can only find some clips of what they said back then, how it felt, whether it was authentic to their experience. My mother had this dreadful premonition. She'd never had one before, and she never had one after. But she said, no, we, we, we can't do this. It's quite wrong. Something dreadful will happen. And I, I tell you, what the sort of woman she was, she'd got both feet on the ground, and for her to behave like that, was absolutely unbelievable to everyone, but she just had that premonition. I was seven. I'd read there was a big ship. It didn't really convey as much to us as it did to my parents. And she just came and joined in whatever was happening during the evening, that sort of thing. And my father got very cross because he had every reason to dislike gambling. His father had been a compulsive gambler and had died utterly penniless from being quite a wealthy man. And so everybody was gambling 
on this Sunday night. They were making books, I think the service, and having sweepstakes as to what time she would get in so many minutes past so and so. My father would have nothing to do with it. And so he went to bed quite early, for him anyway. And my mother sat down to sew and read. And she looked up at him, he was reading, he said he got a very interesting book. But quite quickly he went to sleep and she got up and took the book from him and set her down again. And she said at 10 minutes to 12, she felt a slight bump. And she said it was just like a train pulling into a station. It just jerked. It was very slight, but she said she knew that it was this dreadful something and she wakened my father. She wakened me and my father said no, he wasn't going up on deck again after the night before. But she literally pulled him out of bed and made him go up. And she then said she was going to dress me and I being sleepy and very naughty said I wasn't going to be dressed, nothing to be dressed for, I came back to bed. My father came back very quickly because he could get up to the boat deck in the lift very quickly from where our cabin was. And um, he came back and he picked me up and wrapped his blanket tightly around me as if I were a baby. And my mother said nothing to him and I used to say to her sometimes, years afterwards, I can't understand why you didn't say to him what was it which she certainly did not say. And she said, I didn't have to say what was it. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was this dreadful something that I had to live with for months. And there was nothing more I could say. So he put his very thick coat on her and put another one on himself. And without any words at all, we went out of the cabin and into the lift and up onto the boat deck. Now, if we hadn't done that at that time, I pretty much doubt I'd be talking to you today because, as you know, there were less than, there was accommodation for less than 800 people in the lifeboats and she was carrying 2,200. So it was a question as who was there in time to get into one of the all too few lifeboats. Well, they weren't launched very quickly because at first no one thought anything was going to happen. But my father went away and spoke to an officer and he said, um, they are going to launch lifeboats, but you'll all be back on board for breakfast. I entirely agree with my dear Dr. Ballard's words. He said the whole thing was a tribute to man's arrogance. And I agree with that. That man can be so arrogant as to build something and claim that it is undestroyable, if you like. It's, it's the most arrogant thing to say. True, if the Titanic had struck rocks, or a tempest and storm and sunk. That would be one thing, but this was a ship that needn't have had any loss of lives. That, I think, is the most dreadful part of it. And as I say, all these years later, this interest is profound, and it's because there was no need for anyone to die. No one should have died. Had she had enough lifeboats for two and a half hours and a very smooth sea, nobody would have died. And one life is worth more than the whole ship, surely. That is what I saw, that is what I remember. And there are hardly any of us now to share this memory, of course. I'm the only living survivor now that can remember it and um, get about, so to speak. I don't think there's anyone that can really tell the whole story of it. That lady was Eva Hart, who was seven, as she says, in 1912. The interview is from 1993, 81 years after the event. And 
Eva died in 1996, just a year before James Cameron's Titanic was released. So I was wrong. There were very, very few people left who could sit in theatres and sharply recall the events of that voyage. And they are all gone now. But I owe some of what I have woven together for my own fiction to that measure of solid reality and the blurry, haunting, anonymous faces of the receding past. I'm always reminded of the very real death toll. The indescribable loss, it hits me so fucking hard each time. There are no words. It carries with it more weight than most of us can carry. And it has stayed with me in ways that Cameron, with his broad brushstrokes, might not imagine. I love Aliens. I love Terminator. But Titanic haunts me. And he has inspired me greatly, but I always want to elaborate and do better than my inspirations, layering on complexity and combining ideas and flavors until I have something new and alive. But it's a testament to the power of the film that it still resonates so hard with so many, long after the initial popularity has subsided. When people say they love Titanic now, it's not because it's popular. It's because it did actually have meaning to them. Okay, so we begin with a very intentional juxtaposition. Jim played the happiest footage that he had available against the saddest music. The opening shot is rigged to look like the Southampton portside departure of Titanic, but uh, redone to look like grainy, old, flickery, very early footage, so that when he shows you that and then you see the scene play out later on it feels like the the evidence you've been shown of the real titanic which it wasn't but the evidence of the real titanic is then being played out before your eyes so the magic it's kind of the pledge of a magic trick so that when you are then there you're like wow this looks exactly like the real one it wasn't the real one it was this and similarly when they dive down to you begin with the wreck of the titanic in this wraparound present day sequence there is so much back and forth thing between 
a really craftily made model of the prow of the Titanic and its dining room and bedrooms and hallways and, and just expertly made and shot in smoke rather than underwater and actually being down there underwater and looking at the Titanic. And one of the things that one of the effects uh, heads said was their job was to convince you that what you were seeing was real and for you not to question it and that the best approach for them was to keep changing techniques, to keep changing what you were seeing so that around about the time you're like, I'm fairly certain I know what's going on here, the next shot would defy that. So that you'd actually stop thinking about how they did it. That is the absolute best way to get you to stop thinking about how they did it and just immerse yourself. Yeah, and that desire for, and I would say fixation on, I think the term is verisimilitude. Yeah. That, that Cameron very definitely has. He wants to create something that has the appearance and the feel of being authentic and real. Mm. And he wants to do it so that you can then let go of the suspension of disbelief and just get into the story. Drop your it's cynicism. An, it's an entirely legitimate desire for a filmmaker to have. He's remarkably earnest. I think he earnest. takes it a bit too far Yeah, sometimes. he definitely takes it too far, and we'll talk about that in, uh, in a bit. We'll talk, there's so many things pinned up. We look like Charlie Day with his red thread <laughs> joining all of these things together. But we will hopefully manage to cover all of them. So uh, one of the ways you can tell that what you're looking at is in fact an effects shot rather than the actual Titanic is that there are two submersible craft. When they're both on screen, that's a model. When it's just one of them on screen, that's because the other is really there filming that one. Absolutely, yeah. They had to put the camera somewhere. <laughs> so Cameron said so much uh, in his excellent commentary, and I feel like I, we're going to have to fight to not simply regurgitate all that. He had so much to say. This... Blu-ray actually started making me feel real. like this was the first time we'd actually watched extras with Cameron on this project because there was nothing for True Lies, very little for The Abyss, and um, he'd grown up and like he'd experienced The Abyss, and there were certain like he's nowhere near as cavalier with people's lives anymore now. He's learned that lesson at least. But then he learned all new ways of looking at the wrong thing at the See, wrong at the right time and, 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 and fixating at times whilst ignoring other really rather important aspects of human existence. Yeah. There is a... You need to give these people water, Tommy. No, they don't do that in Hollywood. Yes, they do, Tommy. Yes, they do. James, you need to stop giving these people water. Too this much too water. Much. Stop immersing your cast in water. It doesn't end well. There, there is a, a comprehension gap, I've noticed, between watching James Cameron's work, mm. most of which I adore. Yeah. Some of which makes me go, eh, but most of which I adore. Watching him or listening to him talk about his work, mm. which is by turns fascinating and occasionally frustrating, mm. and watching him work, which makes me want to punch his teeth out. <laughs> in a nice way, in a respectful in way. In a, if I do this, will you stop doing things the way you're doing? <laughs> but I did notice that when they're filming a lot of the, the scenes that ended up in the production documentaries and the behind the scenes stuff, it's not Jim Cameron talking to people. Mm. He's there, mm. 
But somebody else is holding the megaphone and skulking around in the shadows, frowning. What to do? And then there'll be a scene of something that's being incredibly intricately constructed. And it's a second unit director in charge. You described him as not an actor's director, but a crew director. He's a crew director, yeah. yeah. Whenever I see him at work, the people who really praise things like his attention to detail and his determination to make sure that things look accurate and authentic, it's crew. They admire his technical knowledge. They respect his his fixation on the small details of things. When it comes to working, I I can't say when it comes to working with people in a blanket sense because the stunties clearly seem to get on pretty well with him and and are happy with the way he asks them to, to do what they do. But I do wonder if in part it's because when it comes to people who have specific technical knowledge that he himself doesn't have, he will set up, this is what I want... And then he will trust them to deliver what he wants in the manner that they know how to do it. When it comes to actors, there seems to be a level of nothing they do is good enough. He, he doesn't trust them to produce the goods without pain being inflicted. And when they've gone through pain and not quit, he refers to them as troopers. He, you know, he says, These pe- this person was a trooper. And that's because he treats his direction, and we've said this before, like a military campaign. And stunties are way closer to soldiers than actors. Absolutely. And I, I, again, watching this, I was like, this is giving me insights into potentially what his family history might be. Mm. My assumption was he'd grown up with a military father, which is not true. His dad was an electrical engineer. However, he has two brothers... One of them was a marine, the other one is a stunty. Right. That makes all kinds of sense. Yes, it does. And you could almost say, well, why doesn't he just do a film with entirely stunties? But he's also really good at getting amazing performances out of actors. It's just that it hurts them. And the thing is, I can almost guarantee you that the takes that get used are not the ones where they were in horrendous pain. That's not true across the board. Mm. There are a few occasions when he's... We've seen behind-the-scenes stuff that suggests that what he used ultimately was the one where somebody was in at Mm. least discomfort. But for the most part, when we've praised the performances in... James Cameron films, it's actors that we know are superb and that he himself has said they're superb performers. To his credit and also to his detriment, he became a Titanic expert. He is one of the world's leading authorities on the Titanic. Yeah. Uh, this happened while he was filming, but it also happened afterwards because so many people on the internet said, This is bollocks, this wasn't accurate to Titanic. Titanic is a tissue of lies. This kind of stuck in Jim's craw a little. And uh, he went back to the Titanic repeatedly. There was at least one expedition in 2001, which coincided, interestingly, with 9-11. And kind of gave the... This is for the filming of the documentary Ghosts of the Abyss, which we watched on Amazon. You're not allowed to buy it in HD, but you can rent it in HD. And it's kind of amazing. It was shot for IMAX, and uh, it is very close-up, intimate shots of the actual genuine wreck of the Titanic. No model work here. And it's it's very accurate. It's very familiar. They did their job so well between juxtaposing the models with the wreck that it feels like the stuff that we saw in the models, some of it 
was only speculating upon, because it was so carefully and painstakingly researched, when you finally see it up close, it's like, well, yeah, that's exactly how it was already shown. Mm. He then went back again. Bill Paxton was in um, Ghosts of the Abyss, and it made me miss Bill Paxton. And it made me miss him quite a bit, actually, watching Titanic. He's... He's kind of Jim's avatar in this film. He plays this treasure hunter, this this guy who is all about getting hold of the uh, heart of the ocean. And it's this big-ass diamond that is a bulky, heavy thing. And, like, Rose buries the lead, old Rose buries the lead, halfway through the film, calling it a dreadful, heavy thing, saying, this is not what it's all about. And there was a whole deleted ending where Rose almost jumps off the back of the Titanic as an old lady, but what she's really doing is returning the heart of the ocean. And and Brock is like, no, no, please don't throw it in the water. And it was this extra dramatic bit after the death of Jack, who is our personal porthole to loss because we can't fathom the deaths of 1,500 people. The audiences were all sitting with this deep melancholy. He paid very close attention to his test audiences. Uh, like, the, the way you said, he's not very good at analysing his own films in terms of what should I cut out now, but he is very good at analysing how other people yes. see his films. Yeah. And they ran it before test audience after test audience. Like, they, they, they brought them in to see a mystery film, and then when it started playing Titanic, they were just like, well, this is a trailer. And then it turned out to actually be Titanic, and they got cheers. Mm. There were whole sections that got cut out. The scene when uh, Jack and Rose escape from uh, gun-toting Billy Zane. Billy Zane sends his man, David Warner, uh, after them to search around this now-flooded dining room uh, in this very sort of tense moment of them hiding and he's got a gun. And the test audiences were like, nope, we don't like it. And so they shortened it, and the test audiences were like, nope, we don't like it. The ship sinking is threat enough. And they were absolutely right. But the test audiences also didn't like this bit at the end where Rose, you know, it was like, please, Rose, don't do this thing. And even though it was wearing the film's colors on its sleeve and Rose saying it's not about the diamond, it's about the people we meet, the choices that we make, and our forward momentum in life, it said it too much. And at that point... Ultimately, when an audience starts crying, you have to mercifully get them to the end and the credits. And honestly, I feel like the reason people say Return of the King had too many endings is either because, A, they didn't feel anything and they were like, get it over with. Or B, they did feel something, but they were made to sustain that feeling through multiple different folds it's of like the end. 20 minutes, that is a long time to sustain yeah. that kind of melancholy. Yeah. So I've, I've always been like, bah, how many fucking endings do you want The Return of the King to have? They're wrapping up hours and hours and hours and hours of movies. But at the same time, now from that perspective, just knowing, especially as a, a writer who ends his books in melancholy ways, you kind of have to just get there. Mm. Just like, don't hold people yeah. cruelly by saying, look at this, we're tying up this loose end. And it's like, I don't care about that. <laughs> Emotions are not a static thing. They're a process. And the only way out of them is through. Yeah. But... Can- but what, just, just to go back to sure. the whole um, Cameron being open to other people's take on his material mm-hmm. uh, and that actually being a better way for him to reflect than than doing it on his own. Mm. You pointed out the a similar thing happening with, at the script writing stage, that he would create scenes and write dialogue that 
when actually performed, didn't work. He hadn't figured it out at the script stage, mm. but once he saw people performing them, that gives him the lens to then be able to go, okay, well, maybe that doesn't work quite so much. And he is very open to allowing actors to rework their dialogue and, and recreate scenes in a way that makes emotional sense for them. So again, that does indicate that he is capable of trusting his performers. It's just that when he doesn't, he doesn't in quite an over-the-top dramatic way. Hmm. He doesn't badly. Yes. He does well. Well, yeah, yeah. So the, the capability is there, and it would appear that, as you said, he's getting better as he gets older. Yeah. It was a cold stone, a heart of ice. After all these years, I can still feel it closing around my throat like a dog collar. If you could have felt it, not just seen it. Well... That is the general idea here, Rose. Wait a second, I want to get something straight. You were going to kill yourself by jumping off the Titanic? <laughs> That's great. Lewis. All you had to do was wait two days. <laughs> Tell us more about the diamond. What did Hockley do with it after that? Oh, I'm afraid I'm feeling a little tired, Mr. Lovett. Would you like some more coffee? She's tired. Well, wait, wait, wait. Before you go to bed, can you give us something to go on here? Like, who else had access to the safe? What about this Lovejoy guy, the valet? Did he have the combination? That's enough. I need time. Just, just, just buy me more time. Buy me more time. Brock, we're six days over as it is at $30,000 a day. At this rate, I won't be able to raise 25 cents for a phone call. The partners are pissed. Brock, are you hearing this? I'm telling you what they told me. The hand is on the plug, it's starting to pull. Well, you tell the hand I need another two days. Bobby, Bobby, we're close. I smell it. Don't smell it, okay? I Don't smell ice. She had the diamond on that night. I just gotta work her a bit more, okay? All right, we'll uh, develop satellite trouble or something. You got two days, Brock. Two. Go get them. Hey, Lizzie. I was just coming to find you. Can I talk to you for a second? Don't you mean work me? Okay, look. I'm running out of time here. I need your help. I'm not going to help you browbeat my 101-year-old grandmother. came down here to tell you to back off. Please. you got to understand something. I mean, look at all this. I got guys diving around the clock. It's a three-ring circus. My partner and I, we got all our dough sunk in this thing. This is three years of my life going down the drain here. I bet everything to find the heart of the ocean. You see this right here? What? That's the shape my hand's gonna be when I hold it. I'm not leaving here without it. I, I can't leave here without it. I need to unlock what's inside your grandma's memory. Look, she's gonna do this her way, on her own time. Don't forget she contacted you. She's out here for her own reasons. God knows what they are. Maybe she wants to make peace with the past. I really think she was there. Oh, yeah. I'm a believer. 
She was here. The next day, I remember thinking how the sunlight felt, as if I hadn't felt the sun in years. The, the business of naming and crediting writers is actually quite cutthroat in Hollywood. You get uh, people who do uncredited rewrites, which literally means they aren't in the credits. In the commentary, uh, he said, I wrote the entire script. And then there was this one writer who was responsible for, I think, three lines, and he went uncredited. And he didn't credit him there. He didn't say his name was Brian Burrow or whatever his name turned out to be. It's almost like if I say the name, I have to give him money. And But he was talking about, you know, the, my, my actors were sort of saying, well, maybe I could do it like this and find a more uh, naturalistic way of doing it. And, and it became a thing to chime in for us to say, script material provided by Leonardo DiCaprio or Kate Winslet. And they specifically found a way to be more real. And again, Cameron fielded a lot of uh, uh, fuss from people who were like, this is way too colloquial. And he's like, no, honestly, a lot of these phrases, even when Kate flips off David Warner with uh, get flips in the bird, it's like, no, that was actually something that people were able to do at the time. Yeah, Had been able to for quite a while. I do think there is a tendency to uh, overestimate the oldness, the, the that sense of past history, uh, particularly in America. And I do wonder if, if part of it is because there are some areas, particularly sort of the Midwest and that, that kind of belt in the middle mm. of America, where the Old West did actually carry on until like the 1920s. Yeah. Not everyone talked like Deadwood. They didn't even talk like Deadwood in Deadwood. They changed the word fiddlesticks to the word fuck yeah. repeatedly so that they could make the language as blue to us an audience as it would have been in its own era. Yeah, But I mean, audio recordings have been around for a long yeah. time. But his point was that people actually in... But his point was that people in the Edwardian era didn't actually speak all that different to how we speak now. Mm. And there was one particular scene uh, that stands out in terms of uh, rewriting uh, that where Rose uh, was buttoning up her and, and stringing up her mother's corset and being told about what she must do. And then the night before they started doing it, James went, how about if Rose is being put into her corset? And it's like, that's so obvious. And yet... Until you start thinking about what things symbolise and what they're there for, sometimes it's it's not until it's right in front of you, it doesn't become apparent mm. what needs to be changed. Absolutely, and it is it is very understandable that needing something to be externalised before you can accurately mm. assess it that that's not that's not uncommon. And there are things that we're going to interpret about Titanic, specifically about colour and light, which I'm not even sure he meant... I, I'm fairly certain he didn't mean one of them, but it nonetheless manifests in the film itself. So there's a lot of death of the author going on here, just in terms of... like Also, his interpretations of the characters, I think they've lived in, in, in my head for so long that I, I kind of... Again, with Death of the Author, I, I disagree with him on certain things that Jack would feel and think and say and do. And it's like, well, he wrote Jack. Jack is him to a degree. Honestly, at times it feels like what he's doing with Jack is what Zack Snyder attempted to do with Sucker Punch. Only his on-screen avatar was played by Scott Glenn. And he was like, you know, you have all the power you need. Now fight. And it's like, thanks, Zack. 
This is, uh, you know, so that ladies can be on the road to becoming Snyder's women. Yes, indeed. But that's effectively, like, that's what Jack is in the film. He is Jim Cameron's on-screen avatar trying to breathe, uh, let's try to kindle the flames of fiery ladies. Yes? No? Okay. Okay. But like I said, he went back to the Titanic for uh, shooting well after he'd already got all of his Oscars, after the film was completely done, and then went back again. There is an extra on the Blu-ray, which looks phenomenal, by the way. He regraded the whole film for release in 3D. And it was absolutely worth it because everything looks fantastic. Rose's hair is luminously red. The blue of the sea and the sky, it's just astonishing. The whites and the blacks, especially on an OLED screen, this film looks phenomenal. But one of the extras is an hour and 36 minutes called The Final Word on Titanic. The Titanic story that everybody knows is largely myth. This is the latest Titanic plan that was produced right before the maiden voyage, too. It's the farthest piece of the ship yep. from the breakup. There were exactly. survivors who we said saw it, break. it broke. That is a conspiracy. I yeah. think so. Coming down on that vector, you get that, that buckling this way. I don't think my question's been answered. It's really dramatic when you get inside yeah, exactly. the Strauss sitting room. We now know a lot more than we knew in, in 95 when we set down that path. It's time to just say, this is what really happened to the best of our collective knowledge. Let's get the history right. That it could be. We got half an hour through, and then I turned it off and said, you know what? All this is going to do is piss me off more. Because it was Jim Cameron in a room with eight of the preeminent Titanic experts in the world discussing exactly how the Titanic fell from above and how it landed on the ocean floor. And they were trying to solve the mystery of how this hatch got over here, why the engines landed here, how did these windows get open? And And it's like, none of this matters, Jim. None of this matters. It it wasn't just Titanic experts either. Yes, he had had Titanic uh, historians in there, but he also had naval engineers. Mm. He had uh, people who built ships for a living. He wanted people to explore with him the mechanical practicalities of how this heavy thing and sunk how this heavy thing fell down to there and why it scattered its load here yeah. and there and again i can understand that if your idea is i want to get as as accurate as i can an understanding of what most likely happened so that I can recreate it in a way that my audience will buy so completely yeah. beforehand, that the story just flows. I completely beforehand. understand doing it before you do the film. this was after. He wanted people to tell him, yes, Jim, you're right. The, the whole thing is riven with, so that proves that I'm right. And it, it, this was a, this was the result of 15 years of people on the internet going, um, actually, Jim Cameron, and Jim Cameron going, I've studied this for years. I brought my A-game. How fucking dare you contradict me? And I understand. 
I understand internet <laughs> dickheads, but an hour and 36 minutes going, and this is precisely where the forensic evidence shows the Titanic landed in all of its various bits. And you had to pay these people. They're, they're consultants. Yeah. Their salary would have been high. And a lot of they're sitting around like, I don't want to argue with Jim. Like, if I'm going to argue with him, I'd better have something really strong to back this Somebody up Somebody did actually say, I can't remember the exact words, but it was along the lines of, he will agree with you if you have a strong enough argument. But that's the problem. He's the one who gets to decide whether your argument is, is strong, strong enough. enough. Yeah. I always want people to bring their A game if they're going to disagree with me. I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I really relish the idea of having my, uh, having my eyes opened and uh, being illuminated on something. But I am similar to Jim there in that I do expect everyone to be at the top of their game. Because if you're going to argue, why would you do so without really knowing what you're talking about? There was a serious striving to make this as accurate as possible, and there were definitely liberties taken. But what would have been really worthwhile to perform over the years after that is how did this disaster happen... And this has been the subject of many documentaries. Specifically, how did it happen and what what can we learn from this thing that happened in th at this time of recording 109 years ago? How does that apply to today's standards and practices and safety and how we treat people? And there is a ton that we can learn from looking at how this occurred and how needless so much of this of, of these casualties were. And they did, at the time. I mean, it, it, it took a long time to implement all the recommendations uh, that, that were done immediately after Titanic, but there were a lot of rules and regs that were changed as a direct result of mm. this, which, if you want to go into, I have the details on. It doesn't Go for it. To, yeah? Okay. So the, uh, the key elements of what happened with the Titanic in terms of why the loss of life was so huge. Part of the issue was to do with the lifeboats. That was one of the key factors mm -hmm. in why more people were not saved. First of all, there was no legal requirement for lifeboat drills or anything that meant that there was a particular process that would be followed by everybody when it came time to evacuate. That changed. They brought that in straight away. You now have to not only have lifeboats, but have a crew that practices in using them and has a, a set order in how things are done. Because of the sheer size of the, of the ship, they had the law had been set previously in terms of how many lifeboats uh, a ship had to have. It was determined by the weight of the vessel rather than the number of passengers and so it uh, but it was it they were only used to measuring it by certain sizes so it was like if it's over x number of tons then it has to have 16 lifeboats that was the the legal obligation titanic was so much bigger than that weight limit but they didn't multiply up they just went well the legal requirement is for us to have 16 lifeboats there wasn't one above that because nobody had ever made a ship that big before they need <laughs> for perspective folks they needed 48 to 50 boats to get everyone on board yeah. into whether they had enough time or not Absolutely. that would have been the the maximum occupancy and capacity yeah, they ended of, up with uh, 20 they had 20 which is over said, the 
minimum of 16. Exactly. Just. The, the legal obligation was 16. They said, well, we've got 20. The, the people who designed the, the ship, uh, Thomas Andrews, who is a, a character in the film who mm. we will discuss later. Played excellently by Victor Garber. So he and uh, a colleague of his called Car- Mr. Carlyle... Who is not in the film or mentioned. In the film. I, I think they kind of conglomerated the yeah. two, but he wasn't on the ship, so that, that kind of makes sense. But they had designed the boat to carry 48 lifeboats, yeah. which was enough for everybody on board. And the owners of the White Star Line that had commissioned the ship overrode that because they didn't want the deck to look too cluttered. It is mentioned, the exact wording in the film is, but it was thought that it would make the deck too cluttered. And they, Jim Cameron turns the camera around and points it at Mr. Ismay and says, ah, it was this fucker. Now, I have spent 20 years hating this guy and want like, you are responsible for all of this shit. And you found out through looking that Ismay isn't quite as He's culpable. He's not quite as bad. He is. He is representative. Ultimately, he is the the one person representation of the corporate board of the White Star mm. Line, which would have made their decisions collectively. Yeah. He wasn't the single person who signed off on all the shitty ideas. But that's the thing. If Cameron was going to make a forensic investigation, your best bet that's is to look kind of at all of these men who made these decisions. And yeah. guess what, folks? All of these men had massive estates. All of these men have surviving estates. Yeah. All of these men have lots of lawyers. Yes, who, do. when you point to them and say, your great-great-granddad is responsible for 1,500 needless deaths. He was one of the men in this boardroom. Suddenly, then, you've got a class-action lawsuit from the wealthiest people in the world Indeed. on your hands. One assumes that Bruce Ismay did not have many descendants to defend him yeah. because he keeps getting vilified yeah. in well, every story He becomes story the about repository the for all of the, you fucking corporations, all you care about is your money. precious money! Exactly, yeah. But at the same time, if the bra fits... Well, indeed. But, but that's the thing. Focus on there, that's fine. It is, however, the case that he is often shown as being extremely cowardly, getting himself off the boat as quickly as possible. Well, he did get himself off the boat when it was for only women and only children. Yes, he did. He was on the side of the boat where they were allowing men to get on, Uh and he got on the last boat to leave that side. Mm. According to the report of the captain or somebody at the time, Mm. he did help a lot of people get into the boats before he got in himself. There's other reports which say he was running around going, Flee! 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 Lives, until Gandalf showed up and whacked him <laughs> whacked with a him stick. The face. Well, indeed. But ultimately, what's happened with every portrayal of the Titanic since then, um, he'd, he'd, when he got back into New York, he fell out with a guy who ran most of the newspapers in that area. Mm. And he published a lot of propaganda vilifying Ismay. The and journalist. The journalist. You said specifically the, the, that the, there was the a giant list of in names case, of 1,500 yeah. people who died. And then... Uh, the list of people who didn't die on the right just, just J. Bruce is made. Yeah, which is not true. Lots of people survived. Yeah. Alternately, you could have a much shorter list of list of men who survived, and there's just 128, 
one of whom was J. Bruce Ismay. And in the case of this Titanic, also Cal Hockley, who is fictional. Who is fictional. And even more cowardly, because he's like, I have a child! I have a child! I must get in here! Absolutely! Like, grabs and a little poor child and goes, <laughs> I, I get in the boat And free. Cal Hockley is designed for us to hate. Yeah. But yeah, the... Uh, because the, he represents everything that's wrong about... About like, the society as a whole at that yeah. point, frankly. But the... the What descendants Ismay does have, apparently every time there's anything about the Titanic, they get in touch and are like, now would be a good time maybe to, to change exonerate the way... Dad. Not necessarily exonerate, but just change the way he's portrayed. And what they always get met with is, this is what people expect. This is how they expect us to... to what they always get met with is, well, if the bra fits. Well, no. <laughs> We've already written the script, so no. I've said this before. Ultimately, uh, I'm sure that I'm representing Thomas Edison... F- fairly unkindly in my depiction of him versus Nikola Tesla, who everyone loves to love because he's like a punk scientist Mm. who was denied and unappreciated in his time. But that's the narrative that everybody loves and it makes for some great drama. And when it comes down to it... And again, it's not entirely based on Exactly. I was going to say, when it comes down to it, I am not immune from the perspective that says, if you've Mm. got a lot of money, that's going to put a question mark over everything you did to achieve that. If you became a billionaire, that means a lot of people were paid a lot less than they should have been. you ought to have. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so back to the lifeboats issue. Following the sinking of the Titanic, they brought in a rule, you have to have enough lifeboats for For every passenger and crew member on board. So in a way, this horrendous tragedy did by turns probably save lives down the Absolutely. line as yeah. a result of the te- the terrible the just the the shocking nature of of just the the utter loss of life Absolutely and a couple of the other things that the lifeboats were sort of the key focus of it and particularly in the film but there's a couple of other things that contributed to the dramatic loss of life one of which was when they started sending out the uh, the distress call on mm. the radio the Ships that were. You mean the Morse code? The Morse code, exactly, yeah. The the places, uh, ship or on land, that were close enough to pick it up, the radio operators had closed up and gone to bed. Yeah, the California Morse code operator had gone to bed. They actually filmed the scene where that happened. Yeah, but it didn't end up in the film. It didn't end up in the film. But the the rule change after that was your radio comms have to be staffed 24 hours a day. It's so fucking obvious! We sit here and go, what? But it, until this point, it hadn't occurred to anybody because it hadn't been needed. Who could possibly be in distress at four in the morning? Exactly. But this is what baffles me. If you have emergency procedures, they're for emergencies. By definition, you need them all the time. Sally Ho, we're on the bottom of the ocean right now. We didn't want to bother you, but... <laughs> anyway. Pip it. So, yeah. So there There's was stiff upper lipidness, and then there's my upper lipidness is frozen. Indeed. Uh, there was also some confusion over the descri- the distress calls generally. This was there was a brand new one that was SOS. They were shifting from CQC to uh, SOS, and the guys in the Morse code room decided to use the new one. How about both? That would have been smart! <laughs> CQC, CQ what? CQC. CQC, so close quarters combat, and then SOS, save our souls. Just... We're being attacked so, by Solid Snake. Yeah. So. Sorry, uh, Big Boss. <laughs> So there was confusion about that. The other thing was uh, the emergency flares. Now, ships were in the habit of, at the time, using emergency flares to indicate that they were in distress. Yep. 
uh, that they were approaching and ships, other ships should avoid them, so yeah. effectively like a lighthouse, or just to say, this is us, we work for the White Star Line. Or so, uh, if they couldn't find the dinner gong, they were like... <laughs> Send up a flare. Send a flare up. So the... Don't the I don't flares, want to shout. <laughs> some of the flares were apparently seen by ship captains who were in the area, but they didn't know what they meant. So after this, the rule changed and it went, right. If you see a flare, it means there's a ship call. in distress. You go. Okay? Okay. Um, so this was probably covered in a lot of other documentaries uh, that didn't cover the forensics angle. So uh, Cameron must have concluded, well, this has already been covered, so I guess I'll focus on where the boilers landed. And the what what happened in the immediate aftermath... This is the suck zone. <laughs> what happened in the immediate aftermath of the Titanic is that they founded uh, a an, British and American inquiry board that looked at disasters that happen at sea and how they could learn from them and improve on them. Worth noting, some of the conclusions they drew weren't implemented until 1974, so it took a while, but all of these core ones that I'm talking about came into play uh, straight away. Uh, They also founded something called the International Ice Patrol, which was an extension of the New York uh, Coast Guard to effectively chart that there will be ice flows yeah, here. They, and here. they patrolled. They already the North- had iceberg warnings. Absolutely, but this was something that was exclusively dedicated to patrolling the North Atlantic. And if they saw something that was particularly big, or it was like there's more in this area than there normally is, they would tell everybody. But that's the thing. They were told. They're told in the film there's warnings of icebergs, and that's during a conversation that Cameron maintains was overheard between Ismay at the the guy that everyone loves to hate, the uh, business guy. Um, Lord Business, we can call him. (laughs) Lord Business and uh, Captain Birdseye, who is sat there, played by Bernard Hill, with this grotty, like, mustard-looking level of his moustache. Like, I'm assuming, because Bernard Hill didn't have that in Lord of the Rings, that they added that to him to illustrate that Captain Smith was a smoker or or chewed tobacco and kept gauzing it all over his own push broom. They were overheard having a conversation where Ismay was like, speed her up. And the Captain Birds, I was like, eh, dangerous and all that. And uh, Ismay was like, yeah, but if we get into New York early... That'll make the ship look not only massive, but also faster than you'd think. And Captain Birdseye did not then say, she's the biggest ship in the world. Wow enough. That's the best and only good line from uh, Jurassic World. They're, They're dinosaurs, wow enough. That is a really good way of describing, isn't this the biggest thing ever enough for you? And that's the thing, with with rampant, crazed commercial capitalism, no is always the answer. They want all the money that exists in the world, and they want the money that doesn't exist. They make up money that they then want to have. Because the bottom line is that this planet, which is beautiful and a gift to all of us in the human race, has become the site of a dick measuring contest. And it has been that way for a long time. Yeah. Not a long time for the Earth... But a, a long, long time, time for, for dicks. <laughs> so you've not yet lit the last four boilers? No, I don't see the need. We are making excellent time. The press knows the size of Titanic. Now I want to marvel at her speed. We must give them something new to print. 
This maiden voyage of Titanic must make headlines. Mr. Ismay, I would prefer not to push the engines until they've been properly run in. Of course, I'm just a passenger. I leave it to your good offices to decide what's best. What a glorious end to your final crossing if we were to get into New York on Tuesday night and surprise them all. Make the morning papers. Retire with a bang, eh, EJ? So yeah, Cameron was striving for realism and well, no, realism was striving for authenticity as much as he possibly could. They built a scale version of the Titanic. It wasn't exactly as big. They took out certain sections in the middle and they made the entire left side, if you're looking at the Titanic from the front, the uh, the starboard side of the Titanic. But if you watch the film, when they were at port, you get the port side. So for a lot of those shots where there's a giant boat there, they've actually flipped the image because everything's going in the other direction so that they can have the starboard side there and point the cameras in the other direction, which meant they had to have a whole bunch of signs written backwards so that when they flipped the image, it looked like they were written forwards. So like I said, we get this wraparound of um, the, the, the modern day boat there. Effectively, Brock is a pirate. He's kind of uncharted, and they uh, they they filmed on this this real Russian vessel that really does um, you know do deep deep dives, and specifically the Titanic itself herself was not found until the mid 80s. That's amazing. the The idea that she could be down there all that time, and there's something that Cameron said near the end of the uh, of his commentary, which is that the only time she sees light is when we come down to investigate. She's in darkness. And that starting with her, this wreck, with James Horner's best score on a bestometer, I measured it. This is the first time Horner had uh, worked with Cameron since Aliens, and it would be the second of three times, the other time being Avatar. I think he was Oscar-nominated, Oscar probably won for all three of them. Let's check. Oh, it actually lost in 2009 to Up by Michael Giacchino. But at the same time, uh, I, I believe uh, James Horner had already won for both Braveheart and Titanic, so it's not like he wasn't recognized by the Academy. Now, very sadly, no longer with us, which makes his music all the more melancholy. The opening with that ship, it's wondrous. I mean, I had, I remember now, because I was watching a little bit of it last night, I had gone to London with uh, Paul and Tony to see this for the first time and see it at the Odeon Leicester Square. And we actually went to the IMAX first and saw a 51 minute short-ish called Across the Sea of Time 3D, uh, which is about a uh, kid from Russia named Thomas Minton going to find his uh, descent, his ancestors who lived in New York, and he's sort of wandering around trying to find them. It is not well made. It's not uh, great. It's one of the last films John Barry scored, um, but it it kind of concerns Ellis Island immigrants. So I was imbued, even though the film was not great, with this sort of sense of the going to America and the the hopes of that and the trying to make a new life. And James Horner very specifically, who had already won for Braveheart, uh, was encouraged to utilize a kind of a, a Gaelic sound to his music. So it starts with these sad horns and pipes and, and, and choral 
music. Like he, ve like it, it wasn't standard to just use female voices almost as an instrument. And I feel like Lord of the Rings may have taken a little uh, leaf out of this particular book here because they brought a lot of female voices and sometimes male voices into their. Uh, Howard Shaw clearly studied this score when he made his three-part opera. But the fact that so many that it, she was built in Ireland and that so many Irish people died on her, it feels like there's a that this was warranted and that there's part of that soul is in there. It's really difficult to describe this in a way that doesn't descend into poetry or uh, navel-gazing, but I just, I was immediately grabbed. Again, I was age seven, a 17-year-old boy should be at his most cynical almost at that point. Maybe 14, 15, if, if you like, it was just getting past that stage where you think everything is bullshit. But I never really went through that everything is bullshit stage. Just I, I felt at odds with the world, but I didn't think everything was bullshit. But I had a romantic soul back then, and she just grabbed me. The the wraparound, the actual the the main story, they very smartly avoid overexposing us to because that represents the cynicism the uh, that the crew are sort of looking at the titanic and making jokes and you know oh somebody left the water running when they're looking at a, at a bathtub and uh, very specifically that that guy was like a real life expert what's his name uh, Louis Abernathy. Louis Abernathy, thank you. Uh, he's like was a real expert from the crew, and uh, and Jim was looking around for someone who could play him in the way that they feel like the crew in the Abyss, very specifically. And he couldn't find anyone who quite had that same spark. And he remembered specifically Lewis saying, look, you know, if you want to fuck your film up and I'll play myself, then go for it. But he does really well. He convinces as an actor and as a crew member like this, an, an expert in that. You know, he's, he's playing a small dual role. But he's the cynic. He's the person, uh, along with Brock, like they're not feeling this ship. And that's... It's kind of baffling if you think about it, because you know you have to remind yourself they're looking for the diamond, not that they are in love with the idea and the, this melancholy legend of Titanic. They're looking for money, and you know they bring in adult Rose or sorry, ancient Rose to, uh, to to tell them where they might. If, effectively, they're saying, "Where's the diamond?" And she's like, "Well, that really." That brings really me to a tale. Two questions there. That brings me to a tale, and uh, I'm going to tell you it whether you want me to or not, because I've got a captive audience. <laughs> and the fact that she's looking at this underwater footage and it sort of reawakens these memories in her, like there's a real potency throughout this thing. Like something is reawakened in Rose, and she sort of starts to feel young again at this stage. That's the whole film is framed around that. And we're shown by Abernathy exactly how the Titanic sunk, at least as their, their best guess at the time, which actually hasn't been updated that much since then in terms of rather than the enormous hole in the side, if you watch Ghostbusters 2 in 1989, the Titanic had been discovered by this point, but there was a film previous to uh, the discovery in the early 80s called Raise the Titanic, um, produced by Lord Lou Grade, where they pulled the whole thing up all together, 
the whole thing. So it's the whole Titanic, not in two sections. And then in Ghostbusters 2, he says the Titanic just arrived. And it cuts to Cheech Marin and some other harbour guy looking at this ghost ship on the waterfront and a bunch of period-dressed ghosts all filing out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a gag. Better late than never. We hate movies do it all the time. But there's a giant hole in the side, implying that the Titanic, all in one piece, slammed into an iceberg and sank all in one go. But we know that there's literally no way they could get everyone into their li lifeboats if it was just like prang and dead. What they actually did on the night in order to try to avoid the iceberg was what allowed them to save the several hundred women and children that they did in the end. All but four of the first-class women passengers survived, and one of them had deliberately elected not to get in a lifeboat. And that was um, Isadora and Ida Strauss. Isadora, the, uh, the, the man, the, the old man, had sort of looked at the lifeboats and said, I am not... He was offered a place. This was on the side of the ship where men were allowed. And he said, I'm not getting into any lifeboat until all the women and children on board are in lifeboats. It's a wonderful sentimentality. And, and this actually allows you to, to think. It allows you to believe that a lot of the rich men and the wealthy men were that level of gallant, were that level of... Listen, my life is not as important as the women, not as important as the children. And it, you can give everyone the benefit of the doubt because so many rich men died. These days, you couldn't imagine them stepping back. You would imagine them going, Do you know who the fuck I am? If, like, imagine a hundred dudes in top hats all shouting that at the same time. It would be fucking bedlam. But back then, gallantry, chivalry, being a gentleman was still a thing. In fact, it was maybe at the height of its being still a thing. Yeah. And also, if it it kind of only takes a handful of people stepping up and making it very visible and very obvious that they're doing that, yeah. and the rest, the, the, the herd mentality, who see kicks themselves in. as well. That's who I am, so that's what I should be doing. Yeah. Would follow suit. They were the men who were like, well, uh, yeah, we would like a brandy though. Pip, pip, let's go play some poker. They actually did that. And um, Isadora Strauss said, I'm not getting in a boat. And then Ida said, well, I'm not getting in a boat either. So this this was filmed. It's in the deleted scenes, which, by the way, on the Blu-ray have been restored to movie level. Like, they've, they've finished the effects. There's only a couple of bits where it's like, well, that's a green screen because you can see just elements of green bouncing off of Kate's hair. Yeah. And they went back to their cabin, and that's, that's the old couple giving each other a kiss goodnight as the waters flood in. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm a softie in this case. This film gets to me. And that actually happened. And ultimately, the, the, the film when it gives you this computer simulation, tells you what's going to happen later on, so that you can, you understand better than anyone on that boat, what's going on under the water line, how the watertight bulkheads are filling up. They, they've been so clinical in, in how this happened. And like Rose even says, thank you for that uh, very professional, or what was it, what was the actual word, you know? 
vivid. Th th thank you for that vivid forensic uh, assessment of what happened. But for me, it was much more. And then the whole point is, look, this is how the ship sank. And everyone's saying, the ship sinks, get over it. That's literally what happened. That's for you, Cynic. Yes, this is the mechanics of how the, the, <laughs> the ship sank. We're about to tell a nearly three-hour story that is very much romantic and uh, melodramatic and right there. This film was begun by Jim Cameron uh, after, like, he got into underwater photography when he saw the footage of the Titanic being discovered. One of the prevailing reasons people thought that there was a giant hole in the side of the Titanic was that as the prow descended through the ocean towards the sea floor, the pressure of the water tore the existing holes all the way open. This is an actual newscast from September the 1st, 1985. It ended where it began, 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. The great ship went down after striking an iceberg. Never a trace was found. That mystery was explained today. The Titanic is two and a half miles beneath the surface. Scientists in a miniature submarine made the discovery early this morning. Mark Gage reports. The Titanic sank on April 15th. 1912. From that day on, scientists and treasure hunters have scoured the North Atlantic looking for the ship. But no one ever found even a trace of the massive 880-foot steel hull. Until today. At 2 o'clock this morning, Dr. Robert Ballard, leading a scientific expedition on board the research ship Knorr, found the wreckage two and a half miles below. We came on it uh, early this morning. Uh, it just bang, there it was, uh, right on top of it. We went right through the whole uh, uh, debris field uh, with a rather dicey uh, uh, 20 minutes. And then we uh, decided that uh, we were at the extreme end of our tracking. It was the Titanic's maiden voyage from London. The British-owned passenger ship was the biggest and most luxurious of its time. It carried the cream of North American society. It was also fast. But that proved to be a major factor in the ship's destruction. The captain ignored warnings that he was sailing straight into a field of icebergs. The ship was traveling at full speed, 25 knots. Then, about 400 miles off Newfoundland, after only five days at sea, the Titanic hit an iceberg. It tore a 300-foot gash in her side. The mighty ship went down in less than three hours. More than 1,500 people died. Only 713 survived. Today, they found the wreckage. The conclusion, we went smack dab over a gorgeous boiler. I mean, just straight out of all the books. Uh, and there's a, it's just a huge area. So we uh, decided that we would uh, pull up and get, uh, get above it all. There are 47 people on this latest expedition, scientists and technicians from all over the world. But the purpose of the expedition was not only to locate the Titanic, its primary goal was to test sophisticated deep-sea exploration equipment, similar to state-of-the-art technology used to recently locate the sunken wreckage of an Air India jet off the Irish coast. The research ship Knorr found the Titanic in pieces. A field of debris 500 meters long and 300 meters wide lies on the ocean floor. But researchers say the real work begins now. At this point, they don't know what state or position the bulk of the ship is in. Our initial uh, reaction was excitement, uh, then a coming down off of that to realize that we had found the ship where 1,500 people had died. 
a lot of us who had researched it uh, for so many years, uh, the Titanic uh, has taken on more than a shipwreck. It's a, it was a true uh, a disaster, and to finally uh, put those souls to rest was uh, a very, uh, a very nice feeling. The ship's vaults are believed to contain millions of dollars worth of gold, diamonds, and other precious jewels. But the people who found her have no intention of raising the ship. They intend to ask the United Nations to declare it an underwater memorial. Search organizers consider the discovery of the Titanic the biggest find of the century. It'll take months, perhaps even years, before the exploration team completes their underwater investigations. Over the next few days, there'll be pictures of the Titanic from the ocean floor. A glimpse of the past as she finally surrenders her secrets from a watery grave. Mark Gage, CTV News, St. John's. CTV News will have exclusive pictures of the underwater discovery as they become available from the exploration site. Now, more on Hurricane Elena. So at this point in his career, James had just finished making The Terminator and was now working on Aliens. But he'd already shot footage of underwater wrecks in Piranha 2 The Spawning, which on Blu-ray looks more like a James Cameron film. It's garbage but you can still see the ghosts of what's going to become his body of work, including a preoccupation with humanity at the bottom of the sea. It's not the sea itself, it's us in her. He then made The Abyss, thinking about the Titanic more, and then he studied the paintings of Ken Marshall, who was part of the production design as well. and. Uh, we've said about Michael Bay before, nice hair, good at meetings. Jim Cameron also has nice hair and is good at meetings and can command amazing budgets. He is the person who can pull from studios the biggest budgets. And sometimes those studios fold as a result. You know, it's kind of weird after doing Terminator 1 and 2 and doing True Lies and all of a sudden you surprise everyone you want to make a film about Titanic. Yeah, it's the old bait and switch. Uh-huh. You know, Just confuse everyone. Them out. And when you went to everyone and said, I want to make a film about Titanic. You can imagine they were ecstatic. Yeah. <laughs> They were just like, <laughs> yeah. that's a, and you can even see the headlines, like Titanic sinks again yeah, and all that right, kind of right. thing, right? Film sinks of its own weight, film is a disaster, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can, the head, headlines write themselves. And it's kind of a drag when, like, people start going, hey, it's a $200 million film. They're almost rooting for it to fail. So what'd they think? Like, originally the budget was going to be, what, $100 million or something? Yeah, we told them 120 and that's what we thought it was going to cost. And yeah, you, weren't, you weren't uh, lying to them. You no, just, you just no, figured that's it. No, in fact, that's why I wound up giving them back my all my money, because I said, guys, I don't want you to think we lied to you, just get you to make this movie. Right. So in other words, like they came to you, made the deal, and you said, hey, you get a couple of million just for making the movie. Right. And you said to him halfway through the shooting or something, hey, here's the money back? Yeah, exactly. How many years have you devoted? I'm talking about from conception to the end of this film. How many years have you devoted to this well, film? Well, it was three solid years, pretty much from the time I finished True Lies. Okay. okay. And you, you had the idea... You worked on the script, I assume? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote the script. You, you, you wrote the script yourself, yeah. and then you went ahead and you shot this thing, and you've given back all rights to this movie. Yeah. You own nothing of this movie. Nothing. And uh. you will make zero dollars. Well, I own the authorship of the film. Uh, what does that what mean? What does that mean? It's, you know, it depends on how much uh, uh, money means. Well, I mean, how do you make money off the film? Don't you get a percentage? I don't make money off this film. You will not get a percentage of the gross? I, I would have if things had gone the way they were supposed to. But, you know, my, my philosophy is I take responsibility. The buck stops here. Wow. So for three years, not getting paid doesn't disturb you? Uh, well, I'm not going to be out on the street selling pencils. No, I mean, you're a wealthy man from Terminator and stuff. But uh, I'm comfortable. I wouldn't say wealthy. Cause really? I have this habit of making movies for companies that then promptly go bankrupt and don't pay you. WMBC! WMBC! 
Titanic and Avatar were extraordinary in terms of how much they cost, the level of production that went into them, and how huge they were as cultural phenomena. But he bought one of Ken Marshall's beautiful paintings of the Titanic just beginning to sink in at night with all the uh, windows lit and the boats coming away from it. Just stuff which was replicated perfectly on camera later. And he pointed at it and went that with Romeo and Juliet on a boat. Done. That was his elevator pitch. And they went, uh, would you take a check? (laughs) (laughs) And Jim, to his credit, waived his fee when money started going tight. And the studio decided this was... uh, Fox deal, the studio decided that when he asked for money to just, rather than to scrimp on it and go, well, you can't have this, like, a lot of the time the money men like to just sort of hold back on 20 million here or there, just to illustrate that they can, just to say, well, you can't do this, I've got to justify my paycheck, so I'm going to meddle and interfere. Somehow, Titanic... Fetch you the tape measure, sir. Somehow, Titanic was neither interfered with nor meddled with, which would have been... Ironic if it had, because they'd have been like, could we make the film faster? Could my top hat maybe be an inch taller? Yeah. The story in the press, as it got made, was this thing is going to fail bad. It was filmed in the tank in Mexico that was originally built for Waterworld, a notorious bomb in the 90s. The film, which Mark Kermode said still made money, still got a universal ride made for it. If someone was going to write an instruction book on how to curse your film. <laughs> you want the tank. You want the tanks they made from Waterworld water in. You want to. You want to. Desert ca- where they filmed Ishtar. <laughs> nice, good pull. And uh, oh yeah, um, you'll want the remains of the hotel from uh, The Shining. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, the 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 idea was we will make this. Romeo and Juliet. And very specifically, Kate Winslet came in uh, up against a whole bunch of other um, uh, actresses and um, read against Leonardo DiCaprio. And as he left, she said, look, even if you don't pick me, you have got to pick him, which is a wonderful, generous thing for an actress to say. Mm. But there is a reason this thing is huge. They have amazing chemistry, and I really like this version of Leo DiCaprio. I'm kind of bored by the modern version of Leo DiCaprio. I'd had enough of it around about the time I'd finished watching Gangs of New York, and that's who he's been ever since then. Mm. He's maybe a little bit more Gatsby occasionally here and there. It's, yeah, true, but I, I do think... I mean, I think It's I the like, shouting I like that I'm just on, so tired of. Yeah, I, I like him a little bit when more When Nick Cage Gatsby. does it, everyone says he's overacting. When DiCaprio does it, oh, that's it's acting! But, but this is the thing. If you look at... Scratch him if you look at Gangs of New York, if you look at... What's the bear movie? Brother Bear. No. Brave. The Wilderness. The something. Edge. The Edge. No. Come on. I can't remember what it's called. The Country Bears the movie. That's the one. Right. <laughs> Teddy Ruxpin. The Care Bears movie. The Care Bears movie too. The Care Bear Cousins. I've lost her. She's just a puddle at this point. What's the bear movie? <laughs> the oh, thing where he eats the fish. Bear Grillis. <laughs> that is. He once ate some bear that poo. That is the thing where he eats it the fish. It had an apple core in it. And it was like, say, I got this apple core out of the bear poo. And, mm, 
oh, oh, it's warm. And he, he choked it down. And I was like, bear, <clears throat> if the bear, the real bear, ate an apple, that means there's probably apples nearby. You might want to go and find one that hasn't already been shit. Yeah. Or and actually maybe isn't just a core. Find the bear and eat the bear. <laughs> It was a weird kind of, I can do Survivor on my own, with Bear Jack and hookers. Sorry, the film is called The Revenant. Thank you. Yeah, Gangs of New York and The Revenant appear to be very particularly... Well, you didn't respect when I played this role in Titanic. Mm. What if I prove to you that I can do this for real? You mean period survival? Period survival, specifically focused around somebody who's Irish roots and dedicated to New mm. York, and in the case of The Revenant, somebody who can prove that they can get cold on camera. He was uh, he was going out to get pelts. Yeah, because obviously are very important. in Titanic, he wasn't really cold. They were... Keen to put that across, that, yeah. that we did not freeze all of our actors, just for the record. But I do agree with you that the, the, the core love story is really important to the telling of the story and not just because it was the Romeo and Juliet hook that would get people engaged. Hmm. With actual Romeo in this case. Is one of the reasons why at the time there was dismissal of it on the grounds of mm. this was a terrible tragedy why have you got to focus our attention on these two people who didn't really exist yeah actually, I remember fielding a lot of arguments actually with my own friends that someone's I, I said that you had to apply a certain amount of humanity to it otherwise people wouldn't care and to which the response was there's nothing humane about drowning humans and I was like you have a point but at the same time <laughs> people need to really engage on a macro level on a small level because this thing is too big. Absolutely. It's it's a lot of death that is very difficult for us to get our head around. Mm. One of the things that that I noticed, again, in some of the behind-the-scenes footage, there's a, a scene where James Cameron is talking to some people who were in charge of the memorabilia mm. of the Titanic, and they're standing in front of the memorial board mm. with all these names on it. And he, it's right there. It's it's just, he can see it out of the corner of his eye and the things he's talking about are not in keeping with the fact that, Jim, there is a list of people behind you who died. Yeah. And one of the things that kind of really slammed me about it was that the, the passenger lists are now a matter of public record. You can access them online. Mm. You can look at them. The handwritten lists of the people who were presumed drowned. They have records of deaths at sea. It's a, a it was a specific record book of people who died at sea, and you have sort of, there's a few just above where the Titanic ones start. And it's like there's one of somebody who died of a heart attack on a cruise earlier that April, and somebody who fell overboard in February. Mm. And then you've got pages of Titanic, and then the little marks that say, see above presumed drowned at sea, sea above, and it goes on. I've got on. to write this out 1,500 times. Exactly, and it goes on and it goes on, and they get to the very end of the, the list of the third-class passengers. There's two guys with surnames who begin with Z, and they're right at the very top of a page, and then they leave the rest blank. And, the, and then you turn the page and then they start with the next ones that happened after that. Mm. And the essence of that massive blank page is how the fuck do we follow that with standard deaths at sea? You can't. Yeah. We have to start a fresh page. <clears throat> 
And uh, a lot of film uh, uh, cinephiles at the time in 1997 pointed to the 1958 Roy Ward Baker film A Night to Remember, which is, we can both attest, very hard to watch today for a modern audience. It's not just the fact that it's monochrome. There is a two-pronged issue with A Night to Remember that makes it almost the polar opposite of Cameron's Titanic, though both of the films are attempting to adhere to accuracy. Remember, A Night to Remember was filmed only 46 years after the sinking and they had consultancy from survivors and experts familiar with the workings of the ship firsthand. No, A Night to Remember is hard to watch because rather than focus on Jack and Rose, two fictional constructs who are our window to the events and the class structure, which makes up the theme of Titanic, the British film bounces between a dozen or more people very few of whom are memorable or engaging. I couldn't tell you a single character that isn't already in Titanic because they're a real person. In this regard, it serves the second drawback for a modern audience. Almost everyone is stiff upper-lipped and dispassionate, so melodrama takes a distant steerage seat, making this a dry factual account of events, emphasizing the negligence of the crew of the ship, the SS California, which was nearby and ignored all distress signals while the Carpathia rushed into the rescue. It reminded me of United 93, the Paul Greengrass docudrama about what happened on the flight that wound up not hitting a major American landmark on 9-11. Or indeed, Bloody Sunday, his 2002 account of the 1972 massacre in Derry, Ireland. These are films you watch once, if you can stomach it. You feel chilled to the bone, and then you try not to talk or think about them ever again. Suggesting from film aficionados that Cameron shouldn't have made his film and that people should watch only A Night to Remember instead is preposterous and failure to grasp what people grab hold of with both hands about cinema. We also watched Raise the Titanic after this and that was so much worse. It's actually an espionage film, also scored by John Barry, which operates on the conceit that the Titanic sank with dangerous nuclear secrets on board that various nations want in order to make weapons of mass destruction. The biggest weakness of this film is that despite clearly being in love with the romantic idea of the at the time undiscovered wreckage, there's no character who argues against disturbing her. There's no ethical back and forth about disturbing what is effectively an underwater graveyard. Everyone is gung-ho for dredging her old bones up to the surface and then bickering over who gets to keep the nuclear material, which turns out to be buried in an English graveyard thousands of miles away, measurable on a Geiger counter. Like they go there and they go, wiggly-wee, oh, it's here. Our hero, our hero, ladies and gentlemen, chooses to leave it there in the graveyard, where it's safe, ignoring the fact that for 70 years anyone visiting their loved ones would have contracted radiation poisoning and had their hair and teeth fall out. They end up abandoning the Titanic to go off and do this at its final resting place in New York Harbor. They drag her all the way there and then just kind of go, well, she's back, fucking forget about her. It's like they're fly-tipping the most famous ship in history and dumping a burnt mattress in Manhattan's back garden. It is a disgraceful film. Cost $40 million, which was a lot of money in 1980, and made 
7 million back. It sank like the Titanic, and justifiably so, the public went, no, we don't want it. And yet, if you took A Night to Remember and raised the Titanic and used the latter as a framing device for the former, you'd have a bastardized and rotten version of James Cameron's Titanic. But if you think about it, all of the things that came together at that point, if you'd made Titanic in the 80s, the effects available would have been completely different. You wouldn't have had access to all the computer graphics. If you'd made the Titanic in the 2000s, after 9-11, the whole thing would have been a 9-11 allegory mm. and it would have been smack dab in the middle of the superhero boom and it would have felt weirdly out of place and also in weirdly poor taste as we see people dying en masse. Mm. So it had to have been made in the 90s. And if you're going to make it in the 90s, it kind of makes sense to give it to the man who can make it this massive technical feat and has that level of obsession mm. with detail because he made this thing as grand as he possibly could. He he got the little forks were engraved with the correct engravings. Mm. Every single thing he obsessed about. You need someone of this level of obsession. And you can't give it to Kubrick because then you've got a weird staccato robot people dying movie. They had, in the scenes where you see dinner being laid out, yeah. they had shell spoons because yeah. they were eating caviar. You only have shell spoons when you're eating caviar. And then if you get all of this together, but you don't have a Romeo and Juliet love story in the middle of it, a big sweeping melancholy epic where one of them dies but the other one lives so that you get hope that can carry on and move on mm -hmm. from there. And ultimately you want a woman, not a man, to live from that. So the whole thing was a foregone conclusion regarding what was going to happen in this. Mm -hmm. And it definitely did appeal. They got two amazing actors at the top of their game. They've been fantastic since then, but I really love seeing both of them work here. I love Leo DiCaprio playing Romeo, but he's a completely different character to Jack Dawson. I defy you stars! Completely different performance. And it, it made the most money ever, until Avatar came along from the same director trying to do the same thing. I'll get you a tape measure, Mr. Cameron. In other words, this made so many people happy and fulfilled all of its cinematic duties. This did exactly what it was supposed to do. The fact that loads of people don't like it is a side effect of those being fulfilled. Indeed. I think the, the way the love story is framed and the manner in which it plays out was really key. Because if they'd had just, these are two people who fall in love, it's a nice self-contained little story, it's a bubble that floats around the ship, not really touching or interacting with mm. anything else, and it doesn't mean anything beyond two people met and fell in love on a boat and were then separated and by the end And it's not very it. intense, but it's a, f a handy framing device. Yeah, then it would have felt like you thought you had to put that in because people wouldn't engage with the with the broader no. story. However, I think the way it's the way Rose in particular 
is characterised by Kate Winslet, by the, the script and the plot and the things that happen over the course of the story, are what really make it work for this particular setting. It is a love story that they're telling, but there is a bigger love story beyond Jack and Rose, and that is Rose with the Titanic. Mm. Her and relationship to it and what it meant to exactly. her. That's why coming back to this spot means everything. Exactly. It emphasises what that ship meant, not necessarily to the wider world, even at the time, but what it meant to the people who were on board when it sank. The 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 thing that kept flashing through my head was the line from... Pirates of the Caribbean, of all things, what a ship is, truly is, is freedom. What the Titanic represents to Rose, as blasé as she is about it when she goes to board, it's, she sees it initially as something that is taking her to this choking, suffocating destiny that she doesn't want to go to. But the presence of Jack on board the ship means that it eventually comes to represent for her that same freedom, that same spirit of independence that Jack is carrying with himself, that he imbues her with by the end of the film, and what the people on board that ship would have felt that they were travelling towards, that so many of those who were lost, and again, reading through that list of people who had who had been presumed drowned, it was very stark for me about the fact that you go through the first class section and like you said, there were only four women from the first class passenger list who died on board, everybody else got away. The second class passengers, it was mostly businessmen or, you know, professional men who were travelling or appeared to be travelling alone or if they were travelling with partners, the partners and children got onto lifeboats. The third class passenger list is where it starts to, you start to see wife, wife child, wife. wife, child, whole families, whole families because when they were given the opportunities when they eventually did come for them to go on board the lifeboats, they didn't want to separate. There was a whole deleted scene where Fabrizio, uh, Jack's friend uh, from Italy, uh, is romancing a girl named Helga, who is Hungarian and does turn up repeatedly throughout the movie, barely says anything. But he asks her to come with him and she won't leave her family. And it's those ties that in many ways doomed them. Mm. And you've... You pointed out that ultimately, back in those days, if you there were no the communication wasn't there. If they did separate and all of them somehow survived, there would be no way to refind each Absolutely. other. Especially Absolutely, especially with if as you, you get were... to Ellis Island, they go, "Your name's too complicated. We'll change it." Which they did constantly. The the paperwork for you getting on the ship in the first place, mm. if you were an immigrant family, probably got messed up. So the chances of you being able to find each other if you ended up getting separated, and that is something that poignantly still happens now. You get immigrant families who, who are terrified to separate because they know that it's going to be really hard to get back together again if they do. Hey, the boats are all gone. This whole place is flooding. We've got to get out of here. There's an entity this way. Let's go this way, right? No. Come on. Hey, Jack, let's bet, let's bet. Everyone, uh, you come with me. We go. The boats, uh, they, they're going. Let me go, Bart. Uh, they're in the back, in the back. No, no, get ahead. Uh, Captain, go in the boat, in the boat, Cavito. Uh, come on, don't fight a little bit, Hey, 
Elga, per favore, eh? You come with me now. I'm lucky. It's my destiny to go to America, please. Come, come on. Prince Come on. I will never forget you. But it is a memorial of sorts, a melodramatic one, a one that is maybe not considered that appropriate by some people, but to me, marking the sense of potential, the sense of escape and the sense of freedom that people boarded that ship carrying this has at least marked that in a way that a list of people who are lost at sea can't. Mm. Specifically bringing in audience after audience who kept coming back. This brought in lots and lots of old people. This brought in people who wanted to see this whole journey play out again. As tragic as it was, I don't feel like because this was commerce, because this was marketing, because studios got rich off of this, I don't think we can discount it as inappropriate if you sit with the deaths of this many people and sob your heart out as you feel their pain and their struggle, and you see the poor, the majority of us, getting absolutely fucking shafted, kept below stairs. You pointed out that the folks in steerage actually get wet first because that's where the water starts pouring in mm -hmm. and getting them off uh, uh, would actually have made perfect sense if they'd had boats in a specific part of the uh, ship that they could file to. If they had a lifeboat drill. If they had a lifeboat drill and room for absolutely everyone and the crew were all trained in this exact specific way of getting everyone off the boat as much as possible with time provided, so many more lives could have been saved. One particular real-life uh, officer, uh, William Murdoch, uh, is uh, the man who has to react when the iceberg is seen. He gets them to turn hard to starboard right away and try and turn the boat. Now, a side word on the engine rooms, by the way. These look absolutely immense, and it, it baffled me as well, at the time until I, I, I was told how it was done, how you could get these massive things made just for these interior shots. Well, how they actually did it was uh, shooting on a real naval vessel, uh, then scaling up. Effectively, what they were shooting was an engine room that was three times smaller than the Titanic's, and then they added the men later digitally so that they would be the right size and the right scale. But the very idea of having to pull these incredibly powerful moving engines to get them to stop all at once and then start rolling backwards as they turned the rudder. Just the idea of moving something of this size. The fact that they were able to at all speaks incredibly highly of Murdoch's ability to marshal that within the few minutes that they had to react. And Murdoch has unfortunately served the worst of any real person in this film because he's the one who shoots the fictional character that we've come to like, Tommy Ryan, the most Irish fellow ever. Oh, forget it, Boyle. You just like have angels fly out of your arse is getting next to the likes of her. 
it's James Cameron's very broad strokes way of showing Irish people, which pissed off a lot of uh, folks at the time. But we like Tommy, and this real man shoots this fake man, and then shoots himself. And Cameron, on the commentary, sort of tiptoed around it a little earlier in the film, and then when it came to the actual horrendous event itself, said, well, this caused some controversy. It caused controversy because you made up a very specific event that defamed a man who potentially saved hundreds and hundreds of people. He said, well, there's no, nothing historical that says that Mr. Murdoch didn't do this. You know, like the way fan theories work in this kind of this will hold up in court way. And I, I was contacted by the family who were a little cheesed off that I had depicted their great-grandfather as a murderer who then committed suicide when his organization was needed. Yeah. And it's like, you did Mr. Murdoch dirty, Cameron. Yeah. How dare you pussyfoot around it? Apologize. I think the essence Exonerate of it, him. The essence of it was that there was some documentation to suggest that somebody wearing an officer's type coat mm. had shot themselves but ultimately most of the crew wore very similar clothing yep. most of them had firearms so there really was no way of pinning who specifically it was who did that and they pinned it to Murdoch because Murdoch was a known character that they'd worked on a known a known person a real person mm. Here's the thing, as a writer I have responsibility if I'm dealing with real historical figures in my alt history. I can fuck around with Ulysses S. Grant, his reputation is safe. No one's gonna care what some complete nobody British guy did with the character of Ulysses S. Grant in his alt history. But if I wrote a story wherein John A. Bud Hillerich, the inventor of the Louisville slugger baseball bat, went on a killing spree, and that book just happened to be adapted into the most successful movie of all time, there'd be some justifiably pissed off Louisville families. Not far off, a thick-set fellow stood wearing what looked like the armor of a Roman centurion, whilst another man beat at his chest with a baseball bat. Come on, put some back into it, son. <clears throat> this is as hard as I can hit the bat is. Cracking. One more. Sonnenhunden. <clears throat> I spent seven hours carving that. Well, what would be the point of testing this on some old cheap stick? Good work, Hillerick. Next up, we'll try a Clementine. What we're talking here is mass defamation. It should have been absolutely actionable. You get a character who doesn't exist to kill another character who doesn't exist. It's still saying this about the White Star Line staff, who, by the way, at times come off as pernicious and go back down the main stairwell. Very, like shitty men who are jobsworths and just like, it's them who are keeping the steerage passengers captive, imprisoned, when from the sounds of it, on the night they comported themselves like gentlemen, and in terms of percentages, almost all of them went down with the ship and died, because none of them got into the lifeboats apart from the men who were specifically rowing. 
but you get a fictional guy to shoot a fictional guy. You don't get your real guy to shoot your fictional guy, and the audience goes, I hate you forever, Mr. Murdoch. Plus, it's your fault we hit that iceberg. Hey, your great-great-grandfather has been immortalised in film. Also, right. weirdly, when Jack and Rose kiss, they distract the two guys in the crow's nest, who were also real guys, who didn't see the iceberg in real life until it was a little bit too late. Mm. And the implication is, it's because they were looking at these two fictional people. Couple of things Jim did which probably shouldn't have uh, happened. But that's the thing. You can point to five or six of these things and say, these are terrible. That doesn't make the whole terrible. Mm. You can point to this thing and say it's a, just a litany of misinformation, but the level of detail and factual material on show is also absolutely sizable. It is, in fact, partly this authenticity which makes the misinformation rather powerfully indelible on a cultural level. If we're going to put Titanic on trial, it really comes down to weighing it up mm. and how much of the stuff being done is genuinely erroneous and egregious in a, in a way that damns an entire family line. Mr. Murdoch is an example of this. Another scene that uh, was filmed, but they decided not to put it in the final version, was uh, after Rose has been at supper prior to her meeting Jack, she is just sort of staring off into space, and internally she's screaming. And it then cuts to her in her bedroom, trying to take off her dress, which is bothering her. And she can't, because the uh, clothes in the Edwardian period were so complicated that uh, genteel ladies could not take them off or put them on without the help of their maid. And their ma her maid, in this case, is not around. So she starts, like, scrabbling at her dress and then throwing stuff around the room and effectively becoming what was considered in the time hysterical and still is. Hysterical! The best way to get a woman out of a fit of hysterics is obviously to slap her and uh, then throw her onto a fainting couch. It then cuts to her running down the deck, uh, you know, heading for the uh, stern of the uh, ship so she can throw herself off the back of it. And I was like, after having seen it, I was like, oh, that's so good because that, that graduates her staring off into the void to her taking this dreadful step. And then I realised over time that the specificity of it would actually disengage a lot of people watching because it's almost without showing the exact cause, keeping it nebulous, keeping it to a state of inside I was screaming, allows it to be applicable to all kinds of shit that we have to live through and suffer through and internally screaming gifts, mm. all of that stuff. So it's actually... that This was trimmed and edited in a very canny way, which ultimately left most of the film pretty much on the money. There are a couple of shots I'd also change. There's a few effect shots where it's almost like we can see too much of the underside of the ship, and that's because it's clearly a big CG thing lifting up, and they hadn't quite worked out how to let light fall upon it. And there was no moon that night mm. as well, uh, which is accurate. They, um, it, is, it was yep, a new moon, is which is why they didn't see the iceberg. But the other famous shot that everyone will remember is the guy who falls off the back as the ship is turning up to a 45 degree angle and twangs off the propeller and he's obviously made of CG and he spins away and the entire audience collectively goes, ooh. But they're not going, oh, that poor man. I mean, they are, but at the same time, they're all going, ooh, I wouldn't want to be him. And it's like, you don't want that bit at this point. 
You don't, that is schadenfreude and it's a little bit comedy. It's a gag, it's a, a tension reliever that bursts the bubble that you've built yeah, at that point. They have been, tr like, the whole end sequence where the ship goes up and then down and then really up. And then when the lights go out, it's a real moment of, okay, civilization has now crumbled. We are now fucked. This is really the end times. Hold on tight. It's, it's a real moment in cinema and, and they hold it. All of those stunties hanging from the railings, they're falling off and they're falling into rubber deck parts, like those big balustrades and railings and things that most of them were remade in rubber so that they wouldn't hurt them. The big danger being if they fell into each other, an elbow could smash a jaw. So everyone was padded to the nines. The stunties really did their work. And by the end of this shot, these sequences, everyone falling is now computer because there's too many elements at work, too much ocean and metal and rubber and falling and potential death. And at least to that end, Cameron held back. It's an amazing, awe-inspiring moment. But like I said, this film... When you've seen it once in particular, there's a real sense of being trapped. Once they're on the Titanic, and especially once it's hit the iceberg, you kind of, like when you're, they're running around in the labyrinthine bowels of the ship, and they're taking you effectively on a tour of Titanic as it's sinking, but you never kind of, your heart's pounding the whole way through because you know that death is coming, and that separation is coming, and that Jack's death represents the tragedy of the death of everybody else. And at the same time, everybody dying around them and falling off and, and drowning in the water and freezing to death before they can drown. That's not done cheaply. Again, I'm going to reiterate this point. It's not done in a way that's sensationalist. It's not done in a way that's like, cry, you bastards. It's saying, all of these people died. In most cases, they didn't have to. This could have been prevented. And we're stuck with this tragedy. And it hounds us, this spectre of like what's going to happen as we rewatch and rewatch it. And it's... There's something transportive about the fact that because they have gone for all this level of authenticity in what's around them. When they start flooding it, when they start smashing it to pieces, it feels like this grandeur and this beauty being demolished. And it feels like everything we've made crumbling and all of this pomp and circumstance that they've done to make the rich people feel more special. It's all just gilded lilies. It's just burning and crashing around their ears. There's a power to it, which is merely taking what would have happened there and showing us it, as opposed to fabricating it. It's not coming from anyone's imagination beyond imagining how it would have happened and working with the physics of the items that they have. All of those, that famous shot of the plates all falling off as the ship turns upwards was, I think, the... The, the most popular shot in India for some reason. They, they really dug on the idea of all this China, much of which had never been used, just tumbling down, cascading down. There is a stilling nature to this loss of stuff, but then of people. 
the first half of the movie is very much like once we actually get in beyond the wraparound uh, framing device. I, I heard it referred to as being like Mills and Boone. Yeah, that's that accurate. accurate? Mm-hmm. So it's like a, I read a lot of Mil- I used to read a lot of Mills and Boone. It's a little bit of a bodice ripper. It's 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 a, a Victorian Edwardian melodrama, mm. and it's about a woman who is captive in this society. And it takes a lot to say, look at this woman. She has access to everything. She's stupendously rich. Uh, Hockley is staying in a room, a suite of rooms that was vacant for the actual voyage, just so that they could be as authentic as possible by not putting him in somewhere that was uh, already taken. But it had been paid for by someone who elected not to go at the last minute and probably thanked their lucky stars, but they also probably paid eight grand for this empty room, which was 16 times the average working wage of an American. The opulence on show, it's obscene the level of opulence on show. It's, it's, that makes Titanic a very timely film to watch now when people are waking up to how fucking unequal capitalism is. Mm, yeah, And also the fact that we're currently in a phase of, wow, the iceberg's gone. That's probably a bad sign. That's the thing as well, yeah. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Has anybody checked the bulkheads lately? I saw a, a neat... Um, Drawing, which uh, I mean, there's a, a fairly classic one that's showing the difference between equality and equity, where um, uh, kids are trying to see over the railings to watch a baseball match, and equality would be they're all standing on the same size box, but the short kid still can't see over. Equity is the short kid gets two boxes so he can look over. So there is, it's it's not balanced, but the not even really privileged, the level of account accommodating for the weaknesses of those who need it is is balanced. Mm. So what you're saying is, to each according to their need. Exactly. It's not necessarily each, uh, you know, having their own... Yeah, everybody own. doesn't get the same, everybody gets what they, they need, need to bring them up to the same level. Mm. But the updated picture that I saw recently was, next to them, there is the 1% balanced on a teetering tower of crates and boxes so high they are a pinprick disappearing off into the sky Mm. because they have everything. So the steerage passengers are paying a large amount to them to actually get to America to start a new life and the first class passengers are paying a large amount, a large token amount, but it's almost like we could give you this for less but you want to pay more so that you feel more special. It feels more exclusive. You know that people definitely could not afford this. what you've paid. Yeah, precisely. And to a degree, I think Cameron sort of goes in without sharp teeth on the, uh, you know, to congratulate themselves on being masters of the universe. The first class passengers do not come off well, but like, say, a more punky director would fucking savage them. However, again, you can't go against the evidence of what happened on that night, which is that a lot of the men stepped down, stayed back, behaved like gentlemen. Absolutely. But there is also the fact that James Cameron celebrated his Oscar win for this by standing up on a stage and announcing that he was the king King of the world. King of the world, yes. Did you watch the movie, Jim? A lot of people found it obnoxious and blasé, and they would react better to uh, again, um, this 
what I do not want to do is say this is what anyone who didn't like Titanic felt mm. because there, like I said there are so many reasons not to like Absolutely. it but it is and it moves in such broad brush strokes that they would get people who were crying for a measure of subtlety mm. Cameron doesn't work in subtlety no he doesn't I don't know why you're going to see a Cameron film expecting <laughs> subtlety, subtlety. But we it's have like going to a Lars von Trier film and going what's well, a bit depressing <laughs> yeah it's a Lars von Trier film <laughs> But we have said this many times. You couldn't have it had is... like a, a fun bit of musical number in there and then not hanged that lady? Indeed. It is a melodrama. Melodrama is not everybody's cup of tea, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah, I said to that earlier. To some people, melodrama is incredibly overwhelming. Mm. They can't bear it because it brings out these incredibly intense emotions and the, it, it distances them mm. from the emotion because it's just too big and it's just too broad. Cameron is populist, so uh, he, what he illustrates is that Rose is trapped in her society, which no one else seems to feel trapped by, by the way. It's only Rose who doesn't want to be there. Yes. Everyone else is like, well, this is fine. This is just how but life is. The majority of women felt trapped. That's why the fight for suffrage yeah. that was going on around this exact time. If there had been a point where Rose had looked at a bunch of the other women and gone, yeah? And they'd have gone, yeah. 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 <laughs> That sense of being trapped obviously pervades the whole movie. Like when they're then in the bowels of the ship, she becomes symbolically this thing that's going down. But Jack isn't necessarily trapped by being poor. He is freed by being poor, which again, I think Adam and Joe very specifically said in their Titanic parody with soft toys, being poor is fantastic! Which obviously, if you watch the Irish dance when they, they go down to steerage, did you want to go to a real party? It would appear that being poor is fantastic. When you look at these stiff upper class men going, yes, yes, brandy, yeah, well, right. But that is often a class stereotype broad brushstroke image that is presented. Cameron's mm. certainly not the, the only or the first person to, to show it He's populist, so was Shakespeare. The, but it's, it's a shorthand that says if you are not from the upper crust, you are not surrounded by the same ridiculously strict and nonsensical mm. societal rules that they impose on each other. The fact that your freedom makes you free to starve is kind of by the by. It's kind of a reverse Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol was written for rich people to say, here's a taste of what the poor have to fucking deal with. Titanic was made for everybody, in other words, the poor, because none of us have money, by and large. And it's saying, this is how the rich live, those fuckers. But, <laughs> but at the same time, it's not really getting its teeth in. And it's also not saying being poor is fucking terrible, because there are like there are times when you go, can you bring home a lettuce, please, sweetheart? I'm sorry, we don't have enough for the 86p for a lettuce in our bank account. That is the moment for me when I'm like, that was at our absolute worst. But Jack is kind of a tramp. He's kind of Charlie Chaplin, who was doing films at the time, and so he's like sort of going from port to port. And going, you know, I'll just sort of be on God's good favour. And he's charming and fun, and there's almost no flaws to Jack. They, they have to almost invent one when he meets uh, the parents. Uh, when her, her mother comes around, he is teaching her to spit over the side of the boat. And a lot of people didn't like this scene, but I, he turns around and he's got this great big fucking grolly hanging off his lip. And it's like, this is me, so... Would you believe this is my only flaw? 
He's a bit of a Gary Sue. Like he is a wonderful guy. But there is there is an aspect of Jack that feels like. And I, I, when I initially said this to you, you pulled a face, and I understand why. I'm about to pull a face. But, <laughs> but there is an there is an element of the way that Jack's built up. He is not meant to be on that boat. Yeah. The tickets he boarded with are in somebody else's name. Yeah. Because he never gets off the boat, he is never logged as having been on it either. Mm-hmm. So effectively, Jack Dawson exists for the duration of this voyage. As he she exists. says, he exists now only in my memory. Exactly. He is there. But he only ever existed beyond the Titanic yeah. in her memory. And, and I know why. And the memories the of those who met him. But this is not me saying, is it possible that Jack was just a figment of, ima- of Rose's imagination? No, that's no, not No, he what I'm interacted saying. with a lot of other people. And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place, you know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky hand at poker. A very lucky hand. Mm. All life is a game of luck. Mm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. Right, Dawson? Mm. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world having champagne with you fine people. I'll take some more. What he brings to Rose, what he imbues Rose with, that spirit of independence, that spirit of, yes, freedom of being poor. And it does sound ridiculous, but there is a conversation that he has with Cal in the dining room where they're talking about sort of what they, what what benefits they both have in society, what benefits they have in the world. But the bottom line is, if you dropped Jack and Cal Hockley in the middle of New York City without their wallets, identification, etc., see which one of them starves first. It's not going to be Jack. And specifically, Cal is depicted as uh, a man who, when the financial market fell through, he put a pistol in his mouth. Exactly. He is so tied to this money and stability that, that we've just how... seen is unstable. Precisely. We put that all our defines his worth. That is not how Jack defines his worth. Jack doesn't even really define his worth by his his talent, which is his drawing. That's just an aspect by which he expresses himself. But his purpose in the story is not necessarily to be the other half of this love story. It's to be the person who brings an ability to survive to Rose, which is what enables her to step off the Carpathia at the end. Yeah. It's self-sufficiency. The uh, Effectively, what he's te- showing her is your money is a cage. Your, uh, he never says this. And actually, he does. He says this will kill you. Mm. Not right now because you're strong, but eventually this will kill you. And I love how truthful and honest he is. Yeah. He doesn't lie to her. Occasionally, he'll omit things like I I nicked this coat from LG Ryerson. He says he borrowed it. We don't know. He didn't ask permission to. No, we do because he actually we see him take it. Um, (laughs) He's a bit of a thief, a little bit of a thief. So then, I don't know whether Cameron thought that people would buy. He'd stop, like he was casing the joint because when he comes in to, to draw her, he's sort of looking around the room. At no point are we given. 
any indication that he is trying to get rich off of Rose at mm. any point. No. When he meets her, and she's hanging off the back of the Titanic, there are so many ways he could basically move in, like sweet talk her, and then grab her and body her back onto the boat and, and, and make it so that he forced her back on. And Cameron says he's not really thinking of jumping in the water because if you jump off the back of a ship, you're gone. That's the part I disagree with. I actually think that Jack is thinking of jumping in the water. Not that he doesn't value his life, but just he's looking at this lady who's deciding to jump in there. And I just feel like everything else in the, the film suggests a level of human, de a superhuman decency. He's fucking Superman. That he actually would go, could someone throw in a rubber ring? Bye! And just, like, dive off the back to, I mean, I, I am wrong because James, the author, says otherwise. But, specifically, he's giving her the choice. The way he he gets her to turn around and give her her hand, and then she slips because she's wearing an impractical dress and odd shoes. And it's not just pull me up. She's screaming and flailing her free arm around, going "Help me, help me!" Calling for the society that has brought her up and kept her safe so far to come and help her. And he says, "Use your other hand to pull yourself up." He is saying to her propel yourself. Absolutely. He is saying take action, yeah. Rose. Yes. And that and is this, the whole movie in one scene. It really is. And it this happens repeatedly, both literally and metaphorically. When Rose is in trouble, Jack does not save her. He stops her falling any further, and then he tells her to pull herself up. He supports her. Yeah, absolutely. So many of my supportive male leads have come from this. Mm. He's a fine example to us. I, it, it's ultimately all of those guys going, "What? how do I play the game with women? How do I make them think I'm a nice guy so that I can sleep with them? Okay, go back through that sentence. <laughs> Cross out every word that implies inauthenticity or forcing someone to believe or do something they don't want to believe or do and then start again. Just be honest. And get into the groove of being honest. Honest and considerate and communicative. You really can't go wrong with those three things. You have colour theory on Rose. I do have colour theory on Rose, Would yes. you furnish us with it? Okay, so this is built around the concept of warm colours versus cool colours. Mm -hmm. Which again, so, may not be what Cameron intended. I very much doubt it. I know at least one of the examples that I had in mind was entirely accidental. This is he the, said so. This is the man who uh, uh, wrote, you know, of, of the Monet. Look at his use of colour. Yeah. Here. And pointy <laughs> finger. Look at his use of colour. <laughs> That's okay. so refined. But there is, if, if you think of warm colours represented primarily by reds and cool colours represented primarily by blues, and imagine the fact that the Titanic herself is blue at the bottom and red at the top. And these two colours effectively are doing battle for Rose and her soul throughout the film. So, if you look at the way Rose is dressed and her wardrobe in the early part of the film, whenever she wears something which is red or yellow or a russet brown colour, 
she's being allowed to express herself to some degree or the part of her character that is her true nature is trying to come forward. The scene where she cracks and has the uh, the fit over the fact that she can't unfasten the dress, the dress itself is bright, is red. bright red, but it is overlaid with black lace. Nice. It is covered up. She is choked by a net at that point. Um, she has, when, when she meets Jack, there's one scene where she's wearing like a yellow and white pinstriped suit and that's when she's talking the most she seems more like a suffragette at that point she's talking about her desires for the future and and what's actually going to happen Mm. and you can you can pick up her frustration but she seems more relaxed she seems more herself and then the uh, there's another scene later on when jack joins them at dinner and she's wearing like a brown uh, russet brown dress again it has that black lace over the top so she's still encased in this net Whenever you see her wearing green, it's framed in such a way that she's almost, it's almost intended that she fades into the background. They're in the dining room, everything's surrounded by plants. She disappears, except for the fact that she's wearing a bright red sash. The blanket she covers herself in at the end, there's actually two different blankets, both of which have green, which allow her to hide from Cal. Absolutely, yeah. And the first one that somebody else gives her is red and blue, is, uh, sorry, green and blue. Mm. And the one that she gets for herself when she's on board the Carpathia is brown. So again, she's moving back towards that warmer register of colour. The the scene that really makes this colour theory kind of come together for me is when Cal first well there's two actually the first one is when Cal asserts his dominance over her physically and makes her realise how much he is determined to keep her down she's wearing green at that point the second one is when she has capitulated and said okay I will marry you I will allow this society to drown me effectively she is wearing a a long dark blue coat Cal puts around her neck a collar with a great big heavy blue blue anchor weight. Yep, that's saying you are going to be pulled down. Absolutely. But the when she's wearing the long coat, specifically, I believe it's Sunday morning, they have the church service, she's singing, and the frame where they freeze on Rose's face, she's singing a line about the sea. Mm. And she's wearing pearl earrings, and the whole sense of it is this ocean of social propriety is going to drown me. It is going to pull me down. So those cool colours, those blues and greens, are all about the the social world she doesn't want and the ocean, which is literally about to drown everybody, getting hold of her and pulling her down. And anything that's red or yellow or brown or orange is her spirit trying to surface. It's the sunrise or the sunset trying to pull her up and keep her out of the water. It's a shame because Kate Winslet looks, with her red hair, looks fucking amazing in electric blue she really does yeah. <laughs> and that purple hat yeah indeed but the, the there's a continuation of this after the scene where she comes back to the cabin with Jack and she, at that point she's wearing the blue coat and she's had her moment of no I can't do this I need to be with him mm. she strips that all off the robe she's wearing when she comes out is the black mesh but it is trimmed in pink and she then strips down to absolutely nothing. She puts the necklace on, 
to kind of symbolically indicate that there was a moment in time when she had it, yeah. but then she takes it off again when they're done. And the way she dresses herself after that sort of symbolic stripping down to nothing and her being feeling completely free, and now I can build myself back up in whatever way I want. The first thing she puts on is a dress which is a pastel colour, so it's indicative of kind of like a childlike emerging from this moment of rebirth. But it's mostly pastel blue, but it is overlaid with pastel pink. There are like wings of fabric at the back, which are tipped in a very bright pastel pink. She has a, a, a pink pastel sash, again, and also there's like a bodice of a darker pink velvet which you pointed out is right across her heart yeah it's that this is, big dark pink beating heart absolutely right there. that is still under a layer of the pastel blue so at this point there's still this hesitancy she's still not sure mm. and she is going to black backslide a little bit because there is going to be that moment where jack is accused of stealing the necklace mm. and she lets go of him for a little while then when the, the iceberg hits and everybody starts to move, she puts on an overcoat of pink. And that, to me, was building up another layer of, no, this is me and this is who I'm going to be from now on. This is the thing she chooses to wear as she leaves the cabin and they go out into it. Now, a little bit further down, she, when she gets Cal's coat put on her and then again when she has the life belt put on her which is white she's now wearing black and white and at this point the colour kind of melts out of everything mm. and essentially what that seemed to say was right now the battle that's going on for Rose's soul and her love is not actually important this is black and white this is life and death this is what we're focused on for this duration and then she gets the blanket which is blue and green and then we move on to the end where she gets the blanket which which is brown, which again is is her coming back out of that. So there's there's all these little moments of, like I said, look for the cool colours versus the warm colours, and that's her moving backwards and forwards into, I'm going to allow this society to pull me down and drown me, and fuck no, this is me, I'm kicking for the surface. Mm. And my uh, theory, which may hold water or may not, uh, much like the Titanic itself, my theory is about illumination. There's three matching moments in the film, very specifically, where Rose's face is illuminated that coincide with a realization. And she, her face is illuminated repeatedly, but there are these three core ones. And at least one of them was an accident. So Cameron may have thought later, oh, that's kind of neat, and I'll juxtapose those two. But I don't think it was intentional before he shot. See, but, that was one of my colours as well, orange light. Yeah. But honestly, coming up with something in the edit after the fact, it, it often is a really good way of tying things together. Mm. And, you You're know... You're still crafting the story at yeah. that point. The initial illumination comes when uh, Cal says, you know, we're go you know, stay up here, we're going to get onto a lifeboat, we're going to escape. And the flares are going off, and one goes off behind Cal and illuminates Rose's face as, uh, as she begins to realize that this guy really is everything he says he is, which is just this, this absence, this absence of a soul. He only really cares about himself and his immediate uh, vicinity. It's, and so that's when she starts thinking, I've got to go find Jack. And she gets away from him. That's when she spits in his face. Get into the boat. Rose. Goodbye, mother. Rose? Rose, come back here. Are you cold? Oh, 
to him? What, to be a whore to a gutter rat? I'd rather be his whore than your wife. No! I said no! This is because he's expressed that though he understands half the people on this boat are going to die, he doesn't care, because the better half will be safe. That's her realisation about him, but because he represents everything about the life she's trying to leave behind, he is effectively the sentinel guarding the doorways of that that she has to get past in order to escape from this cage. The second time she's il uh, illuminated is when they return to almost exactly the same spot and Jack with Cal, who just says, me and Jack can get off as well. We've, there's a lifeboat on the other side of the ship who's letting on men, which is accurate. Uh, she believes them for that one moment because this is the lie she wants to believe, that she can have everything, that she can effectively get off, that Cal will actually support her in her new decisions in life and will actually preserve Jack, who has become this kind of repository of, I need this to survive. Mm -hmm. At that point, the end of the movie could just have carried on because she is in a lifeboat. You know, then Jack would go down with the ship and Cal would find a way to get off. Effectively, she doesn't change that much about what then happens, mm. but everything needs to happen within her still. And she's looking up at Jack and she's looking up at Cal and she's thinking, you know, okay, I'm about to have my life saved. Am I about to have my life saved or not? Jack has at that point uh, spoken quietly with Cal and realised, you know, oh, yeah, he's going to get off, but I'm fucking dead. But he wants Rose to survive more than anything, and he starts to realise this about himself. Again, this could simply be the human decency, and he had decided he wants this anyway. But ultimately, I feel like Jack would always have reached this decision, that he's that level of unselfish. And when he sees someone who's really worth keeping around, because he really cares about her they you know it, he goes from you are you know a woman in distress to you are someone that i really like spending time with you genuinely believe these two have fallen in love and also at this point jack again is representing rose's newfound spirit of resilience spirit of survival mm. and spirit of independence which in that moment she's being told cal will respect and preserve but the bottom line is that's not true if she does what Cal tells her to at this point, he will crush that spirit as soon as he gets the next opportunity. Also, insidiously, Cal has uh, uh, said, effectively, I want to give you this diamond, and I also want to fuck you so that I can claim you, so that once I've claimed you, you're mine forever. Here's a collar with an expensive bauble on it. Absolutely. Um, open your heart to me, Rose, does not mean open your heart to me, Rose. means open your rose to me, dear heart. But she and Jack have now gone down into the ship's hold and made love in a red automobile. A red automobile with red roses inside. And it's also worth noting when she goes to, after Jack has been arrested mm. and handcuffed in the Master at Arms quarters, when she goes down the corridor to find him, what she's following to get to him are red markers. It's the red fire extinguishers on the walls, nice. the red hoses. Whenever she sees red, it's leading her in the right direction. And the thing she uses to free him is a red, red fire, fire axe. Nice. It's not just for The Shining, folks. Absolutely. Um, and so that's her Excalibur. Cameron pointed out uh, that her orgasm, when she's flinging her hand up, this, this sweaty hand against the steamy window, and then 
again, another thing that I think really probably melted the hearts of many people of, you know, it, regardless of gender in the uh, audience, was the, the fact that the two of them are both trembling and that the thing that had just happened between them really shook them both. Clearly Jack has made love to other people before, but this one really mattered to him. And then very specifically, she lays his head upon her breast in a kind of maternal fashion. She sort of transitions from maiden to mother, and rather than being petted and babied herself. But again, if we bring her back to this lifeboat, and she's looking up at Jack, and Jack's realized he's gonna die, and she's gonna live, and that's okay. She can read that on his face, and the flare goes off behind him, illuminating him, and illuminating her face, and she realizes, oh shit, I don't just want to live, I want to live with him, and I do not want to be separated from him. I don't want to take even the tiniest chance that we will not be able to be around, because she is at this point still attaching all of her ability to live and survive to Jack. Mm. That's another thing she has to get past. She needs to be able to survive without Jack. Yes. So then, at the end, when they are soaked in blue, in the water, in the darkness, in the freezing cold, and Rose's skin has gone blue, her lips have gone blue, her eyes were already blue, her hair that was so red is practically blue, and Jack is similarly soaked in blue. This has been approached as though there's, there was always a methodical way of sharing the single floating makeshift raft, so... It's after they've gone into the water and Rose gets onto the top of this, what I, like, well, at the time I thought was like the top of a piano. I think it's like the side of a wardrobe. It, or something. It's, it's something like that. It's a large piece of wood. Jack tries to get on it as well and it almost capsizes. And people get frustrated and say, well, you could just very easily get two people on that. It's approaching this depletion of life as though apportioning out time spent in and out of the sub-zero water or very nearly sub-zero that we've already been told hits you like a thousand knives that we know kills you in minutes based on what's happened in real life it understandably frustrates the folks who see this dire situation like a puzzle in a Professor Layton game, a conundrum to be solved in a way that will leave both of our heroes alive, like a fox, a chicken and a bag of grain in every instance of questioning the actions of these drowning young people, exhausted and freezing to death both in and out of the water, one absolutely key aspect always seems to be overlooked. Jack has already solved the puzzle. He was simply seeking a different outcome. He has weighed his own life against Rose's and decided that there is the tiniest chance that Rose will be able to stay afloat and avoid freezing just long enough to be picked up by the distant lifeboats. Jack makes an immediate decision based on both emotion and physics. This is why approaching it entirely with logic makes no sense. It's, you, you, you have to look at both emotion and physics. He's already tried to get up on the floating wood and it nearly capsized. Trying again will potentially dump Rose in the ocean. There's a deleted scene where a guy comes along and says, if, if, I, if I can't get on, I'll die. And Jack says, if you come any closer, you'll die sooner. And in other words, I, like he's a guard dog. I will protect this woman with my life. No one else can get on. And, and this happened in real life. There was uh, the, uh, the chef that they see on the, uh, the back of the boat was a real life guy. His name was Charles John Joffin, and he was the chief baker who rowed the boat all the way down and then 
and he actually before as it was sinking he was throwing deck chairs into the water so that people would have things to cling to this is a smart guy and that that as you pointed out earlier today gives a wonderful new meaning to the uh, gives a wonderful new scope to the term rearranging deck chairs on the titanic don't rearrange them it doesn't matter what order they uh, they're in they're all going down but if you chuck them into the water people might have more stuff to cling to people might be able to survive that little bit longer there was a uh, an asian guy in real life who survived by um, crouching upon a door and just holding himself absolutely rigid because even the slightest movement and it might tip over and the lifeboats came back and found him and he managed to get onto the lifeboat and that actually happened in real life and that was again another deleted scene but it, again it detracted from what was happening so all of this context that wasn't put in because they wanted to focus on this couple robbed everyone trying to solve the puzzle of vital clues regarding the, the logistics of what was going on here. But when it comes down to it, Jack just wanted Rose to live and gave everything to let that happen. Yeah. And there is a reason why people's minds go to, how do I solve this puzzle? Because the, our, our brains are designed for survival. Mm. And when we see something like this being played out in front of us, part of what triggers is... Okay, if this was you and you were in this situation, how would you get out of it? Yeah. So that you can bank that information so that if you ever are on the Titanic in 1912 and it sinks, <laughs> you stand a half-decent chance of surviving. Yeah, I get it. And actually, uh, it, it's an admirable quality to be able to problem-solve and to factor in everything that's around you. But in this case, Jack doesn't factor in his own survival because his only logical conclusion is that trying to live at this stage will diminish her chances of doing so. If Rose goes into the water, her life expectancy drops from the already dwindling level. So his choice is clear and utterly selfless. He values his life. And that's the thing, like, he, he's not like, oh, fine, I'll just die, it's, it's fine. He wants to live, and he is so close to a new world, literally, together with Rose. And this is a dear price to pay. But then when he's gone and she's on her own and the lifeboats come round, her face is illuminated again, this time in a ghostly pale glow. There's almost no colour left in the world. And she's on her last gasp. And she realises, I've got to move. Like they're moving away. I can't make any noise. I, I've lost my voice. I've got nothing left. And then she remembers the whistle that we had uh, shown to us slightly earlier in, the, uh, in an earlier scene in a way that would allow us not to think that it was all that important. And she musters forward momentum into the freezing water that Jack was trying to keep her out of to the one thing that will save her life. And it's that. And she says, I'll never let go. And then unhooks him from the driftwood and he floats down. And people are like, well, she's letting go there. No, no, it's... it's symbolic she's never letting go of everything she has learned about herself she has internalized at this point everything that she needs to from him which is get up survive 
get that motion to move yourself back into a state where you can be saved. And ultimately, this is something that, that's popped up in Cameron films before, and we've talked about this before. The it's Bud screaming at Lindsay and punching her in her cold blue tits and screaming, fight! Absolutely. It's, it's Sarah taking on Kyle's mission after she has to let him go. It's that... The Helen effectively draws from Harry in True Lies the ability yeah. to survive as a spy as and a becomes spy and just becomes as good Asian. a spy as yeah. him at the end. It's played for comedy, but it's effectively the same thing. And it, it does have... It's it's something that Cameron's women get have been criticised for in the years following because it seems like that's all he's interested is in is in women who are physically strong but that's it's why t2 is so good because sarah it also absorbed kyle's trauma exactly. and it requires john to be able to filter, to filter that and again. then reteach yeah. her to you know what it's not all just despair mom we Absolutely. can move forward and it's it's not it's not about one of the things that i have always really appreciated about this form of strength that he puts forward is that it's not about being the biggest the toughest the strongest it's not about being so powerful that you never get knocked down in the first place it's about you will get knocked down accept that it will happen the survival element is getting back up again Ripley as well. She uh, has spent a long, long time terrified of the alien. And at the end, when she needs to become the avenging mother, not the avenging mother, the rescuing mother, mm. she absorbs everything she's learned from Hicks about the technology and the guns that, he's, that, that are available. And she goes down there into the basement to face this dark mother yeah. and reclaim Newt from the underworld. Indeed. And one thing, actually, that I really appreciate, and this would have been dead easy, impossible to do in the time frame they had, but I've seen filmmakers do it before, so what the hell would have been to imply that Rose was pregnant, that she was carrying Jack's child, and that that's why it's so important that he save her. And the fact that that is not even hinted I love at, it. I love it. It would, as you say, it would have been so fucking easy. They even ended Braveheart that way. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, he's, he dies horribly, but baby Braveheart Absolutely. defying long shakes. Dude, it's been hours. That's a biological impossibility. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, that turns up so often. Even in really great films, mm, there's that kind but of, it's, but it's okay because the race but does continue. Absolutely. It attaches so much importance to, it's okay if you die because your biological line will continue. Exactly. As it's opposed to what about, you learn together. Yeah, it's not about the literal carrying forward of... Jack's DNA it's about the potential that Rose has for life as in the living of it not necessarily the creating of it. it it struck me as being particularly pertinent one of the things that she says about Jack is she doesn't even have a photograph of him hmm. what she is given and the connection that brings her as old Rose back to this story is the picture of her that Jack Made And when you look at Rose's bedside table, all of these pictures that she's brought, all of the things that she has, the images that she has with her at the very end, they are of her. There are a couple that are her with a family and, you know, likely her with her children, but they're at the back. The, the images that are important to her in this moment are the, the events in her life that Jack gave her the ability to pursue. The flight, the horse, the becoming an actress and having that gorgeous um, Ava Gardner pose. It's, it's all 
rose as she sees herself through the eyes of other people and that's exactly what the image that Jack drew of her is it is how she sees herself but through his eyes and it's such a victory the the end of the film obviously the the, the loss is incalculable and how do you, you know, you lose Jack as well. How do you come back from that? And the audience is all sitting with this and marinating in a stew of tears. And those last shots, like originally, the original ending was Old Rose pretty much spelling out the meaning of Titanic to Brock, mm. who actually has the heart of the ocean lowered into his hand and has like, oh, I want it so much, but I guess I have to let it go. And she throws it over the side and he starts laughing to himself while uh, his, uh, while Abernathy's like, boss, oh, he's cracked. But the melodramatic, but at the same time measured, quiet, personal way, we then see Rose's life through photographs to show this victory being snatched from the jaws of defeat. And there's such power to that and the, you know this this is the end of rose's long journey and it's an extremely satisfying ending and it the film ends with my heart will go on we won't be ending with that because so many people don't like it if you really need to hear it you can find it easily i will end with the reorchestrations of James Horner in his Back to Titanic second album that he made of, of, of music that wasn't on the extremely popular first one. But My Heart Will Go On is, is again, maybe just a little bit too much for a lot of people. And it's, it, it was the release that many needed and clearly it was a massive track. It also feels like the end of the 90s and that kind of full-throated... This began in the early 90s with Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson singing Beauty and the Beast at the end of Beauty and the Beast. And then Celine Dion is here at the end to be so gushy that she kind of closes the door on that. And you, you have to kind of filter out the level of derision that can be generated from being this open. Yeah. It's something Sharon and I have learned to do. And it allows us to do this. We will see you next time to talk about the last film in the Cameron series until he creates its sequel, Avatar. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. There were 412 women on Titanic. 304 of them survived. That's 72%. 100 lost their lives. There were 776 men. 128 survived. 648 lost their lives. Only 16% of the men made it back to shore. There were 112 children. 56 survived. 
56 lost their lives. Half. Gentlemen, it has been a privilege playing with you tonight. 